This is the Movie Hall of Fame class of Orson Welles. For Thursday, November 26, 2020. Happy Thanksgiving, Adam Hall. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and there it is. That sound. There's got to be better turkey sounds. No, that's it. That's all I got. That's it. <laughs> okay, I have tur- my 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 neighbors have three turkeys that act like dogs. Okay, uh-huh. and they come over all the time, and they're like pet turkeys. Yeah, and they make like <laughs> far more intimidating sounds than that piece of shit. <laughs> God. But you you could like pick the turkeys up and they're they're like this tall, you know, they're like two feet off the ground, and then they'll just you can, you can pick them up and bring them over to the lawn, or they'll just follow you, and you just you're just like, hey, come come here, turkeys, come here, turkeys, we'll we'll take you home, and yeah, it's pretty cool. They don't fuck you up. They don't fuck you up. No, they're not like roosters that will legitimately fuck you up. These are these are the same neighbors that took in a couple possums that I got to hold, <laughs> and. uh <laughs> And like earlier last year, <laughs> early. Let me let me finish. Let me finish. Is your neighbor Joe Exotic? <laughs> Who's your neighbor? They also is Carol Baskin your neighbor? <laughs> they also took in a couple. I think like like seven raccoons. Oh my god! I went over and I got to pet the raccoons. It was pretty neat. They were like these little baby raccoons. They have hands, man. They're really cool. These things saving the roadkill of America, your neighbors. <laughs> they, they they do these things where you know how like cats need. Well, the raccoons did the same thing, but with their their fucking hands, and they have thumbs, and they just kind of like pet you like that. It's it's the weirdest thing. And I don't like anything that's not human having a thumb. I don't like it. It was bizarre. It makes I, me uncomfortable. I have to admit, it was very strange. But they were kind of adorable. And to answer your question, no, it's not Carol Baskins, and no, it's definitely not Joe Exotic. They just like to save animals from the woods and then release them back into the wild. Yeah, for them to be hit by cars two weeks well, later. Hopefully not. <laughs> there's not that many roadkill getting hit by... I mean, that, that's a redundant statement. Uh, there's not too many animals getting hit by cars, are there? I mean... There's some, there's some but it's not I like... I only see possums and raccoons. <laughs> It's just you're you're I mean, look, I appreciate that your neighbors are looking out for the animals that kind of get a a rough shake. Yes. You know, it is sweet. Yeah. Even though raccoons as a kid scared the shit out of me because when I was in the scouts, um, they would always like climb into our tents. Right. And like sniff around and they would come like right up to your face and then they'd have you you, you couldn't move or else they would freak out and potentially bite you with their rabid tongues, you know. Um, But yeah, like I've, I've since warmed up to the coons. Good to hear. <laughs> um, happy Thanksgiving. Oh yeah, happy happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, Adam. What are you having for Thanksgiving? I'm having raccoon. Uh, possum. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Yummy. Delicious. Gonna pick it up off the road because ShopRite's all out of them. <laughs> We're gonna be scrounging around at night with flashlights out of our windows, and there's one. Yeah, I want. I want the coon. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's my plan. You ever had anything besides turkey? Oh, wait. You don't eat turkey. I keep Who are you asking? I keep forgetting these things. I'm sorry. I'm not being very considerate. Yeah. No, yeah. We always do turkey. One of these One of these years, I want to do something like duck, because duck is delicious. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put Daffy on the old uh, mm. on the old stovetop over there. Uh, look, it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. I'm thankful for... I was going to say you, but then I could not get it out. I could not regurgitate that word. Well, I'm very thankful for you. 
Uh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thankful for this podcast. <laughs> I just wanted to be the bigger man there. I'm thankful for our listeners, <laughs> and I'm thankful for the films of Orson Welles. Yeah, me too. Me yeah. too. This is you know we're we're rapidly running out of years, people. So we got to resort, <laughs> which makes me. I, I don't know what the fuck we're gonna do on this podcast for no, the next couple months. <laughs> I, I say get excited because we're gonna do like we 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 need to do a a, a second chances pod for a lot of these years too. Yep. Yeah, you know, 1999 was one of them because there were so many fucking movies. Yeah, we may need to go back and do these years again. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah, there are many second chances that we need to get in there. Um, maybe like best sequels pod, that kind of thing, sure. or limited to a very specific type of genre, like best in cosmic horror, best in romantic comedy, so on and so forth. Because mm. yeah, people, all with, good ideas. Yeah, sure. Oh, I, we didn't write them down. They're gone. No, they're, they're gone. We're never going to so see much them. for that. Yeah, I, we, <laughs> Add that to the trash heap of ideas we forgot to write down. <laughs> I already can't remember them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we have like two years left. Is that it? And I think one of the years was so bad that I almost don't even want to do it. I mean, look, we can always go back to 1935 and just work our way up. But in terms of contemporary-ish movie years, yeah, we're running out pretty quick. I think we have one more from the 70s. Maybe one more from the 90s. I could be wrong about that, though. Mm. And then other than that, it's all 60s, 50s, 40s. Okay. Which, you know, we can do. They just require a little more effort because there are generally not five movies that have stuck around in the public consciousness from, like, post-1960. Do you want to... limit the 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 i don't know the age restriction to five years yeah maybe we can do that instead of 10 five years you know so we do a couple in the 2010s that sort of thing yeah i'm down i'm down to do it five years especially especially in the 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 late 2010s where it feels like no films have any legacy yeah aside from like two or three yeah uh yeah, it's not a it's not a bad idea. I feel like impact as well is starting to sort of lessen over the years as well. Sure. But, you know, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing too. When you talk about these earlier movies, a lot of time you're just studying their impact, which is cool, but it's also very dense and there's a lot of information and a lot of material you have mm-hmm. to comb through and just reminded me of those fucking film school days, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to get there today. <laughs> oh, my God. Bring uh, me back, baby. Film theory. Let's read some Pauline Kale. We should at some point talk Charlie Chaplin. I would love to talk Charlie Chaplin because yeah. I fucking love him. Yeah, we so. definitely need to do a few silent movie podcasts, I think. We could probably, I mean. <laughs> Maybe like Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers, Chaplin, Buster Keaton. If you really want to go back, you can maybe do George Melies, but that's like. <sighs> That's, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the Lumiere brothers, those guys. Some, Griffith. Uh, I don't know. Eisenstein. There's always that. Wow. <laughs> Griffith. I love it. <laughs> no, there's a conversation to be had with D.W. Griffith, sure. But uh, yeah, I, I, lo- I actually love silent cinema. Best clan <laughs> movies of all time. <laughs> he made good movies. <laughs> <laughs> Best movies glorifying the KKK. Okay. Here, how about this? D- the Birth of a Nation, it, for all of its uh, horrible social politics, is not a bad movie. <laughs> uh, I, I've never seen it. It's a it's it's a very important film. Let me put it that way. It's sure. not not one that I particularly enjoy watching. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's hard to deny. Like that that's another film alongside things like Citizen Kane that had a tremendous amount of influence on the language of cinema and the way you edit your films and even narrative structure. Sure, and so, no, invented all of those ideas basically, right? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get to that when talking about Citizen Kane. Sure, that's a complicated conversation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're doing Class of Orson Welles because this week. In in theaters, the film by David Fincher called Mank is being released. Mm. 
No, the the Orson Welles film about David Fincher is being released. Oh, much man. better, much better. What I would pay to see that movie. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, baby. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's about the man- making of Citizen Kane. Obviously, it's I think our most anticipated movie of the year, and it's not particularly close, is it? Uh, yeah, I. It- Honestly, I mean, it wasn't my most anticipated film of the year. It was not, you know, until you know Dune got pushed. Right. But uh, yeah, yeah, Fincher, Fincher, you're back on my map, baby. Yeah, we are holding out hope that this one movie will salvage the entire year. Unlikely, I would say. I was going to say, it won't salvage the year, but maybe we'll go out saying, you know, like, okay, we got something. Sure. We got something. I'm fine with that. Adam and I are seeing the movie in an actual movie theater this weekend, uh, and the review will be posted, I think... By the time it hits Netflix next Friday. Is that when you want to release it? Yeah, I think so. I think get it up in time so people can enjoy the movie over a weekend and then listen to us ramble about it. Well, we, we'll spoil it, I'm sure. So Sure, definitely. We'll try our best to, to let you guys know beforehand. Yeah, but so that's coming next week. This week we said, what a perfect opportunity to talk about the legacy of Orson Welles. Because... Yeah, we've been dancing around this for a while, I think. Yeah, also a very complicated legacy for sure. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff, a lot of film nerdery in today's podcast. <laughs> sure. A lot of indulgence, but uh, how fitting for an indulgent man himself. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Have you been watching anything recently? Mm, did I watch anything recently? I don't know. I feel like I have, but I, th- I, I think it just comes down to... Uh, these movies. I, I had to watch a couple of these films. Uh, other than that, though, I already told you about Possessor last week, which I th- thought was very good. Uh, but aside from that, I, th- I, th- I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. You didn't watch the Steve McQueen thing yet? Oh, what is that? So it's a five-part mini-series, quote-unquote, called Small Axe, and it was a production for the BBC. It was actually an, an Amazon BBC co-production. It's already debuted in England. Now they're releasing it every week on Amazon and they are describing it as, quote, a collection of five films about a similar topic about racial injustice in the UK around like the 50s through 70s. Um, I think like that's what you say when you want Steve McQueen to feel better about what he's doing. And like <laughs> you don't want McQueen admitting that he's making TV. One of the great directors working today yeah. does not want to stoop to the lows of the BBC and <laughs> and, and, uh, and the lowly streaming services. Have you seen it? Uh, I watched the first episode. Okay. Yeah. The first episode is called Mangrove. Here's the thing. I, I don't know how I want to describe this. And I don't know how I'm I'm supposed to rank these at the end of the year because Mangrove is two hours long. It's the first episode of this miniseries, but it is structured very much like a film. Each is, by the way, its own story, its own anthology installment, kind of like Black Mirror. Um, And this one stars Letitia Wright and a bunch of other actors who I was not familiar with coming into it. And it is essentially the story of a um, uh, of a cafe owned by jamaican immigrants are they jamaican god i I hope that's the correct race but they're jamaican immigrants in the uk and their business gets shut down and harassed by the police and uh they're ultimately brought to trial for certain protests certain demonstrations against the police very similar to the story of chicago seven but with black people and in a different country actually around the same time um and half the movie is you know, just sort of about this community and police harassment and stuff like that. And then the second half of the movie, the court proceedings 
take center stage and it becomes like a courtroom film. Um, man, I just wish Aaron Sorkin let Steve McQueen direct trial of Chicago seven. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that was like my main takeaway. I couldn't stop thinking about Chicago seven. as I was watching it. Yeah. I mean, just the themes are very similar. Obviously the, the heroes are different and the ideologies are a tad different. Um, and it's a lot less idealistic because you know, McQueen, he's sometimes a very bitter, cynical filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it certainly packs a lot heavier a punch sure. than Trial of Chicago 7 does. But yeah, a lot of those scenes felt very similar. And yeah, I mean, it's fucking Steve McQueen just doing a Steve McQueen thing. Sometimes he's a bit on the nose with his wonners, with his symbolism and his imagery. There's <laughs> a shot in here of, uh, of a colander that is there um, as the police in... Um, in Notting Hill arrest the, uh, the owners of mangrove, a colander gets knocked over in the kitchen and the colander just begins spinning on the ground after it's been knocked off the table and it spins for what seems like 45 seconds to a minute. And it's an unbroken shot of just silence with that colander spinning. Okay. And it's very similar to some of the other long takes that McQueen has done in the past. Like I think about the shot in widows uninterrupted going through the city, Colin Farrell in the limo mm. uh, or in the town car hunger. There's a lot of that as well. Just a lot of unbroken shots, like beating you over the head with its themes. Shame has a ton of them too. Yeah. I haven't seen shame, but I imagine it's very similar in that way. Um, you know, it's a little on the nose of like it's you know the um, uh, the UK is sort of like squeezing uh, these people through a colander almost like you know there were um, or, or that this proceeding is attempting to squeeze out all of the racism and hatred in the country and like I, I don't know like you can read it a million ways and it just it feels a little bit on the nose in the way that Steve McQueen movies sometimes can but. <laughs> That being said, he is still a masterful filmmaker and I will continue to watch anything he ever does. And I am also looking forward to the rest of the episodes because I've heard the second one is tremendous. All right. Yeah, I'll probably watch it if that's good. I I saw it. I was like, ooh, Steve McQueen's doing something. That's cool. Is it how many stories like that are not on the nose? Yeah, that's a good. It's that's true. I'm getting to the point now where I'm convinced that no one can do that story in a nuanced manner yeah and may, maybe that's just the nature of those stories there's it's very in your it's black face and, and, it's and, black and white too like literally the morality is black and white exactly so right. i know maybe it's appropriate sure who knows yeah no i, I the, the guy often gets a little too clever just because he's a very clever filmmaker and let him be clever he's very know. visceral no i understand let him be clever. <laughs> he's a he's a brilliant guy i i understand but um Sometimes less is more. I don't know. But we can talk about it. You, you should watch it, and I'm sure you will, because uh, that's your boy right there. Yeah. You're a big McQueen head. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that. That's all I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Orson Welles. Five films nominated for induction into the Movie Hall of Fame. They are F for Fake, Touch of Evil, The Lady from Shanghai, The Magnificent Ambersons, and Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. One of them getting into the Movie Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Maybe a few of them should be in there, but just one is getting yeah. in today. Yeah. A few of them probably should be. Next to Godfather Part 3. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> the best movie we've ever inducted, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did a lot of reading into, you know, Wells's, uh history and his influence and his career, which was often very rocky and plagued with scandal. And um, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this. What is your relationship? 
with Orson Welles? Like, how do you view his movies just like as a fan of them? Mm. Oh boy. That's an interesting question. I kind of got into Wells like around the time where I was getting interested in film school and whatnot. I think I saw Citizen Kane when I was in high school mm-hmm. and uh, really liked it and then revisited it again and again in college and really, really liked the movie as well. But I started to just watch his films more on a technical level than anything. And ever since then, I feel like that's kind of where I've sunk. Mm. Uh, aside from uh, maybe Touch of Evil, like like I, I feel like I enjoy his f- films more for the – the his just sheer craftsmanship than almost his storytelling sometimes. Yeah. But then I, I reflect on that and I watch something like the Magnificent Ambersons and my opinion on that very much shifts and I'm like, oh wait, maybe this is how I feel about him. Yeah. So I guess my, my stance on Wells is that I never had like a firm like like you know the, like you know my feelings on Denis. You know my feelings on Fincher. You know it's it's sure. pretty obvious. It's like so like, your buddies. Yeah. yeah. Orson Wells is is your grandfather. Strange. Nah, I don't know. He's stranger. Could be a grandfather. Yeah. Um. Just, just. I don't know. He's a little bit of a myth for me. A little uh, bit of an enigma. Yeah. But then I watch him. I, I, I think sometimes I'll watch his movies and I'll, I'll see just the Orson Welles persona, and uh, I wonder how that would translate to real life. Yeah. And then to just watch him in inter- interviews is like, is like, uh, like, like for me listening to, to, uh ice clink in a glass yeah it's so satisfying i love listening to this man talk more than almost anything i really do (laughs) is it overstating it to say he's the most important storyteller of the 20th century is that is that too far he would very much disagree with you yeah he would he would probably say like okay what about this guy what about this guy yeah i mean like Fitzgerald or he, Orwell he, or well, he would Steinbeck, I guess. Well, he would immediately shut you down and be like, have you met Hemingway? No, I get and, it. And he'd be like, uh, sorry, kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, all right, sure, fine. You couldn't name any of those guys. I guess Bob Dylan is the only other like pop culture figure I would put in that category. But like American is, is that what you because again, sure. then, then you got to bring in like some international people who were very influential. Like, yeah. You know, I, is there a person, though, that has influenced more fields of storytelling in such a short period of time than Orson Welles? I don't know. I this one of one area of, of, of film history that I'm, I'm not uh, as apt with as I probably should. I think that's a that's an intense statement, though. It's hard to answer. Revolutionized theater. Yeah. Revolutionized acting revolutionized film revolutionized magic revolutionized spoken word documentary editing cinematography literature is is there anyone that's had like just a a wider range of talent and influence i don't think so i think he was i don't know if it's so much that he was the most influential per se he's just someone who who I guess like like was sort of a jack of all trades and just knew how to present that in a way that was very I don't know accessible to everybody or that kind of made made a boom of a, a lot of those elements in certain ways and as we'll talk about with Citizen Kane none of the things that he revolutionized he invented I wanted to talk about there's this not a single thing yeah. in like Citizen Kane that was originally from Orson Welles right but it it, it entirely comes down to the man's storytelling. Sure. And that's why, you know, I guess, I guess he has the legacy that he, that he has. I think the, t- the answer to that is much more complicated. Sure. And oddly, a lot of it kind of relates to F for fake yeah. as we'll get to. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it's, 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 um, hmm. he's one of the most important uh, to, to say he's the most important is a, is a, is 
is a lot, I yeah, think. I, I That's true, I guess. Yeah. I mean, radio was changed because of them. I mean, I just look at every sort of facet of popular culture. Every medium in some way was touched by the work of Orson Welles. Yeah. Um, that's, that's hard to say. It's Shakespeare, I guess you could say that about, right? Well, what's amazing is that he was able to like transcend just being an actor or a theater guy or film radio. Yeah. Like he, he was able to, to get his hands on everything and do really excellent work with them. He was like the, the, the Kubrick of media mediums, sure. if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also, as you said, think like the greatest orator of the 20th century i, I would say that now that sure, i will agree. Right? like like se- seriously seriously could guys. anyone talk like orson welles could talk like I, I i need to find every audio book he's ever done if yeah. he's if he's done them at all i'm not like, sure that oh, they were around god yeah that'd be the best thing ever <laughs> oh i would love that and it's always my favorite little tidbit the final screen performance of orson welles before his passing was 1985's transformers the movie <laughs> he lends his voice to play what is it megatron is that what he does i don't know one of the fucking robots in that movie i've never actually seen transformers the movie the animated movie yeah, yes yeah, yeah. yes but it, his voice is used in that movie as his final performance and just like what an unfitting end for the greatest voice that's perhaps ever uh walked the face of the planet he's so fucking great i know so good what are you gonna do um some other movies that we could have nominated uh he didn't make too many movies he was too busy i guess developing some that got scrapped and again innovating radio and innovating theater and acting like giving incredible performances in other people's movies too like he's so good in the third man oh my god the third man is that is like 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 five grades better because he's in it yeah not to say i don't like the third man i fucking love that movie but like but like his presence in that movie is just just so magnetic and i love it so much yeah oh I, and, I, I and it just so happens to Carol Reed is stealing every trick from him, too. That's the other <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, because you, you forget that that's not an Orson Welles film. Right. Exactly. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. You see it. It's so Citizen Kane, the Dutch angles and the mm-hmm. and the lighting and like the sewage systems when when that uh, in that final chase. And yeah, the first hour and a half is good. It's like really good noir. And then he comes in just like throwing 101 miles an hour. <laughs> Look at them. It's crazy. like ants. It's like, Fucking ah, uh, dude, that carousel or not the, the ferris wheel scene that amazing is, that is terrifying and i love it so much uh <laughs> we haven't talked about the third man no we haven't one day yeah one of these years we'll one get day to we'll that. Do it. um but here are some other movies that he did 1943's journey into fear which i'm not particularly familiar with 1946 is the stranger which was a big hit at the time and one that he thinks of uh quite uh, glowingly or thought of quite glowingly um three Shakespeare movies, two direct adaptations and one original story. You have 51's Othello, uh, 48's Macbeth, and then Chimes at Midnight from 1965, which is based on the Falstaff character from Henry the Fourth, I think. Um, Neither or none of them I've seen. However, I hear Othello is like a masterpiece. Perhaps we should have touched on some of his Shakespeare stuff. Because yeah, I, w- I wish he had. I've seen pieces of Othello and it's very good. But it's sort of an interesting story in that it was scrapped around for a long time and he had trouble getting it done. And I think Criterion actually only recently has like the final print of that to the point of its like total completion. Oh, okay. We actually looked at that in one of my Shakespeare classes and uh, uh my professor really loved the movie but also acknowledged like it needed a lot of work but that was because orson wasn't necessarily getting the time he needed to you know properly work on the film yeah um you got 
1955's Mr. Arkadin. You have uh, The Trial, which starred Anthony Perkins. I think oh. it was based on a Kafka novel. That's the movie I think after he made it, he said that this is the greatest movie I've ever made. Oh, wow. That It was one where he had totally gotten control and he felt like he had a firm grasp on the material. And um, Anthony Perkins, a, a non-psycho performance. That might be interesting. I like Anthony Perkins a lot. I have to watch that. Uh, the Immortal Story is a movie that he made in France in 1968 after Hollywood essentially kicked him out of the studio system. And uh, two movies that came out after he died, 1992's Don Quixote, mm-hmm. which was critically panned and was not a successful box office movie, although it had been mythologized for years as this great lost masterpiece. Yeah. And uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which Netflix just dug up, I think, with the help of Peter Bogdanovich. I'd love to see that. I, I still that. haven't fucking watched it. And yeah. it's been sitting on my Netflix queue. What am I doing? I don't know. I need to see it. Can I, I see it? I need to see it, yeah. What are we doing? I don't know. Well, it should have been on the list. Dude, fucking <laughs> Orson Welles died 30 years ago. And this <laughs> yep. $12 a month service is like here. Just watch his it's great like, unfinished masterpiece. <laughs> One of the better things Netflix has ever done. And we're like, yeah, I'll just watch Stranger Things. Like, I'm, I'm cool, man. That's actually exactly what happened. Just check out what's going on in the Upside Down. Just going to see what Eleven's up to. That's it. It really, I mean. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> would it have been better suited on Netflix or Criterion Channel? That's a good question. Because I think more people, the, the right people would have seen it if it were on the Criterion Channel. Whereas, like, anyone on Netflix is just, just browses right past it. Yeah. Although maybe it's more accessible because it's on Netflix, but. Yeah, I mean, Still? more people are going to be exposed to it. It's just crazy that you and I haven't had the urge to watch no. it. It's been up there for a year. There's a bunch of movies that I've had. the Like, it's one of those movies that I just see and it's there and it's very much like I'll get to it eventually. And there's a ton of like true faux films for me. There are a couple of Godards. There's Come and, Come and See, which is on that list. It's like, OK, I'll, I'll see it soon. But I never quite, you know, make the plunge. I don't know why. Maybe it's this podcast. I got, I got to watch all these shitty movies. Not yeah, no, and it's also it's it's like homework, yes. and I, I don't mean that disparagingly. I, I think I've used this metaphor in the past, but like when you go to a museum and you look at the Mona Lisa for the first time, like you have such reverence for this thing, and it's been hyped up to you for twenty years or whatever, and when you finally see it, you're so afraid to hate it that you never really allow yourself to love it, right? You're you're so afraid that you're going to blow this opportunity that you're not going to be in the right state of mind, that you don't really experience the art in the way that you're supposed to. You want to be able to touch it. You want to be able to smell it. You mm-hmm. want to be able to look at every uh, stroke of the brush and see something uh, that no one else sees in it. Um, and you're so afraid that you're going to hate it that you never truly grow to love it. And I think that was certainly my experience watching Citizen Kane. I must have been like 12 years old. By the way, I've only seen this movie once. Oh. I rewatched it again this week for the first time in, I think, over 10 years. Because oh. I had watched that AFI Top 100 special, and I'm like, I must see this movie. AFI says it's the greatest of all time. And I watched it, and I wasn't old enough. And I guess I got it, and I've read about it since, and I've studied it, studied it in film school and everything. Um but I was so afraid that I was going to hate it that I'd never really allowed myself to love it. Yep. And that's the problem. Every time you watch one of these movies, it's like you're on the edge of your seat and you're studying every frame and you're looking <laughs> for the imperfections. And it's like, just fucking watch the movie and get some popcorn and do it like you would watch any other movie. And mm-hmm. that's how you grow a relationship with a movie, yep. you know? Yeah, you discover it. 
Yeah, yeah that, that, that's always been the experience for me. Just sit back and watch it. You know, you don't have to, you know, treat it like an essay. Yeah. It's just, you know, sometimes you fall into that trap, especially in film school. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of the great regrets of like like certain film classes that you could not watch anything objectively. Right. And you cannot just sit back and enjoy the film. You had to be thinking about how am I going to include this scene into my paper? It's sure. Like, Ugh, God, I hated it. Or in your podcast. No, literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little easier here. This is a slightly more free form, which I'm okay with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But every once in a while, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, it maybe would have been better had I just, you know found that on netflix or sure. found that on on my on on cable or whatever and just watched it so. yeah definitely uh okay let's begin 1973's f for fake is first on the list we're going in reverse chronological order here starring orson wells oja kodar elmir deori and clifford irving mm. a documentary about fraud and fakery you can stream this thing on the criterion channel if you'd like also i think on hbo max um, so here's the story behind this movie. I watched it for the first time about a year ago when Criterion first put it up. Um, there was this documentary about a famed art forger named Elmir de Ori, and it was shot by this director named Francois Reichenbach. He had all this footage sitting around of both de Ori and his biographer, de Ori's biographer, Clifford Irving. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about his life the regrets that he has, his career as a forger, the riches, the the uh, the phoniness of art evaluators and buyers and dealers. And uh, Reichenbach had all this footage. And in between the documentary being released and this footage being shot, the story comes out about Clifford Irving, the biographer, how he had at one point manufactured a story about Howard Hughes and wrote a fake autobiography. It was a big deal. Howard Hughes at the time was a very elusive, enigmatic figure, obviously, for obvious reasons. If you've seen The Aviator, you know all about it. Um, And so they bring in Orson Welles, and they say, Orson, can you cut this thing for us? (laughs) And he's like, sure, but I think we got to incorporate this stuff with Clifford Irving. we got to incorporate this Howard Hughes stuff. And one thing led to another, and he starts slaving away in the edit bay. And before you know it, Orson Welles has a completely different movie than was initially yeah. intended. And it is this strange, sprawling, erratic video essay, essentially, yeah. about the nature of fraud, fakery, art, and truth. Um, have I described it adequately? I think so. Yeah. Hard film to talk about. Yeah. Very hard. I discovered this movie in college after watching a video from Every Frame of Painting. Okay. And Oh, yeah. He did do one on that. Yeah. The guy loves this movie, and I really like that channel before he stopped making videos, unfortunately. Come back, Every Frame of Painting. Really great stuff. But um, I was like, okay, it's your personal Bible. I'd love to watch it. <laughs> and this was like, 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 I don't know how to describe the experience I, I had when first seeing this movie. I don't know. It was like being thrown into an orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Not realizing I was getting to get into an orgy. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's very hard to prepare somebody for this movie. It is vibrant and expressive and spicy. This thing pops uh, at at a thousand degrees. Um, But I fucking love the movie. Yeah. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced. Unlike anything I've ever seen out of a documentary or a film essay. And I, I... don't get me wrong. I love 
um, this movie for um, like like its examination and its exploration of of um, truth and and falsehood and what that means to an artist or what that just means to a regular person or what it means to a a, a, a public figure. Mm. Um, it's all great and it all lands for me. It's it, it's 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 great to sit with this movie. It's so rich, but. Um, Man, it's one of the best edited films I think I've ever seen in my life. Certainly the most edited film I've ever seen wow. in my life. Because yeah. sometimes this wouldn't work where it's like this movie is just like doing too much. Where it's like, okay, half the stuff you did was totally unnecessary. Yeah. It's totally unnecessary. But the editing in a, in a way becomes like an art form in and of itself. Yeah. It's part of the artistry of this film more so than almost any other aspect of the film. Sure. I think it's great. No, it becomes a movie about editing eventually. Yeah. yeah. And Orson's, I think, main contribution is not as a director not as an actor but as an editor in this particular sense um he essentially like invents the modern like attention deficit editing and that's been criticized um in the past i i I, there are some people that are a little skeptical of that for fake they just think that's a bit indulgent and does a little too much and it might be right you know it's kind of orson just having fun and experimenting with the form and like that's always a worthwhile thing when orson wells has fun and experiments a bit sure um but i think for a number of years it was sort of this forgotten classic Mm -hmm. because it is so like violent towards its audience it really does assault you Mm -hmm. in all of the senses yeah um but he essentially invents like YouTube with this movie. In a lot of ways, yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's that scene where Elmir and Irving they're being interviewed in two different um in two different scenes, two different shots, and Orson Welles cuts it together without any dialogue, and he just includes like the blank moments of them staring at each other and essentially yep. builds this silent argument that they're having, even though they're not, they're actually, not actually talking. In the room. Yeah. And it was just so YouTube like that's so memeable like that. That's the type of moment you would see like in a Twitter meme now of just like a silent figure reacting without any words out of context. Mm-hmm. You know, like you think about like, you know, a crying Michael Jordan face. Yeah, it's not that far of a leap between F for fake and what you see on Twitter every week. I agree. And it's part of the reason why I think back to like uh, like YouTubers like uh, uh um, every frame of painting and it makes sense why he would look at a movie like this as his Bible just to study what Orson Welles is doing with the editing mm-hmm. that's like a wonderful example of the Kuleshov effect yeah and I just I, I think it's sprinkled throughout this movie as if like it's a ton of manipulation yeah I mean so much of the movie is just a magic trick of like playing one image of a person off of another mm-hmm. and getting the idea that one character is annoyed with the other when really they're not like you said it's sure. just the silent moments yes but it's meant to yeah I don't know make a point about uh I don't know. It, I guess it's just meant to make a point about their state of mind when they're telling that story. And it, it, it paints a really – I, I don't know if it's even an accurate picture. Maybe it is an accurate picture of what they feel about each other, Elmir and, and Clifford Irving. Um, but yeah, it's, it's – it's, I, I don't know. The movie just has so much personality. Yeah. <laughs> it, has, it has such an incredible depth of personality just with its technical aspects in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah. Yeah. Also is inventing the idea of a mockumentary essentially, right? It's, it's like a, cause you're right about that. Like it is kind of a mockumentary, but then it also isn't a mockumentary. (laughs) Yeah, no, the the film essay, this is basically the first one. It's basically the first hoax documentary, Mm. you know, uh, exit to the gift shop. Uh, what's another example? We've done a bunch of them and why is this a thing of just film pranks essentially? Uh, this is basically the first one. I'm sure you know you could draw a very thin line between this and the Blair Witch Project, um, maybe. And also, 
invents the sort of uh, unreliable narrator or director as primary voice and star of a documentary. Yes. Michael Moore owes his entire career to Orson Welles in this movie. <laughs> Morgan Spurlock owes his entire career to Orson Welles and this movie. Um, the idea that like as the director, you can just put yourself in front of the camera and you can be the star and the information and story will unfold around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think was even considered pre-1973. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the guy just continues to innovate and continues to push the boundaries. And at the time, I don't think it was understood. I, I, I think many saw it as too over the top and too erratic and not focused enough. And also, at times, uh, maybe a little uh, disinterested in its subject matter. Oh, is that fair to say? Definitely disinterested in the subject matter. It's a movie all about effect. Yeah. More than anything. It's all about the trick. Sure. So, but I mean, do you think, uh, uh, hmm, it's a good question as to whether or not it's disinterested in its subject. It needs its subject in order to make its points. Yeah. It's not that disinterested in, in the, the subjects it's, it's using. I, I, I don't know. Well, I think there's a school of thought that the best documentarians are the ones that just put the camera down and don't get in the way and just let the the story unfold the way that it's going to. And this movie is the complete opposite of that. But it's not like, a, it, again, it, it is a documentary, but it's also not a documentary. It's yeah. it's it's using a documentary style to to explore an idea. Sure. More so than a subject. Yeah, I would say. That's true. Yeah. And is is using footage that was shot for a documentary as a, a way of telling a very loose narrative. Yes. And yeah, I think you're probably right. It's more of a narrative than documentary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's an it's a wonderful blending of those two. I think the closest one we've ever seen is Exit Through the Gift Shop. Yeah. Where I mean that one to me is just totally ambiguous with what it is and that's sort of the point. This one's a little more overt about those things, but uh yeah, but for me in a way like I I sort of stopped bothering with that. I'm not really totally interested in like like the machinations of who was being totally honest the whole time. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just sort of love the the ideas that this movie lands on towards the end. Yeah, I especially love like like the how this movie judges the value of art. It's one of the biggest themes in the movie. It's incredible. <laughs> it's something we talk about all the time. Yeah, no, this is something we always go back to, like art being manipulation. It's fakery used to describe a real idea. I think that's almost a direct quote from what, Orson Welles at the end, right? What does he say? Like where. Uh, like the job in Hollywood or something like that is to tell, tell the truth. And we're, we're artists and art is just lies. Right. It's like, hmm. it's, it's, it is lies used to tell the truth. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> to manufacture truth, I think is what he says. Yeah. And I was like, yep. It, it kind of reflects to what Stanley Kubrick would say. Like, like, like film is a, a picture of a picture or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Also touches on these ideas of artistry, of ownership, what it means to uh, to produce something, to own something, to get credit for something. There's that unbelievable monologue about the cathedral mm. towards the end of that movie where the music sort of fades out and the editing becomes slower. And, you know, talking about this idea that Elmir never signed one of his fake paintings um, because the signature is the thing that actually makes it a painting that makes it a piece of art. I love this idea. What happens when you don't put your name to it? Sure. Yeah. What right. happens right when the artist <laughs> is completely separate yeah. from the art? Because we always talk about this idea of art and artists and the separation. But what happens when you truly put that to the test? Mm-hmm. When you have a, a film that no longer has a director, when you have a painting that no longer has a painter, like, is it a piece of art or is it just a thing? And he talks about this cathedral, which 
to this day, no one knows who built it. No one knows who the architect was. There's no signature on this thing, but it stands here. I think he says something like it stands here to mark our, our, uh, our place in civilization in this barren landscape or something to that effect. And it's just <laughs> beautiful poetry and yeah. like strangely moving for like this very silly video essay. Yep. It really is unbelievable, man. It's Orson Welles at his absolute best. I know firing on all cylinders. It's yeah. just a, it's just a joy. I, I, that was one of my favorite aspects of the film when they got to that. Cause there's many instances where I'm like, Ooh, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. But when they get to the cathedral, I'm just like, Oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to fucking cry. Like, wow, that's <laughs> such an awesome idea. I mean, they, they, obviously there is an artist who made this, but what happens when people are unaware of who that artist is and how it changes the perspective on the piece itself? Sure. I just think that's so great. You know? And does it matter that you know who? True. True. Yeah. Is, does art derive value from the person that painted it or the people that love it? Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the great question, right? That yeah. plagues all art forms. Then there's the other question about, is there such thing as an, uh, there's no such thing as fakers without artists to begin with. Sure. Love that. Yeah. I love the fact that the, these fakers, like, yeah, they're, they're stealing in quotes, but at the end of the day, the only reason they're stealing is because they have those artists' ideas. The artist gave them the idea to make what they're making. What, what's the little <laughs> anecdote great, about great. Picasso where Picasso is, is giving uh, an assistant of his a painting and saying, this one's a fake, and then gives him another painting and says, this one's a fake, and a third one that says, this one's a fake? Yeah. And the assistant goes to him, Picasso, that's impossible. You painted it. I, I saw, saw you paint it yeah. and he goes well i can paint a fake picasso shed as good as anybody <laughs> it's a great quote you know? <laughs> it's, it's about as meta as it it's gets so meta I but it, it really is so incredible and if you're like a fucking loser like us who spends all day thinking about this shit oh it, let, let's be very clear guys like this is not something you sit down with your family and like no. let's watch f for fake it is it uh, this to me is even more film nerdy than citizen kane Oh, yeah. This is the most film nerdy bullshit yes. you've ever seen in your life. In a good way. In like, a very good way. I have spent weeks in fucking <laughs> college dorms thinking about this shit. Like, yeah. this is this is what I have done with the majority of my life. And listen, uh, that is my cross to bear till, till the day that I die. Oh, my, but like, Mine too. It's I okay. fucking love it, though, man. Yeah, yeah, I too. love this shit. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about this idea of truth and about depiction and deception and... Um, also, the way that he draws parallels to magic in his own career, like yeah. it becomes very personal at a certain point. As much of Orson Welles' work uh, ends up becoming like talking very bluntly about how he made it in this business, how he lied his way into a job uh, in British theater, and then somehow parlayed that into direction. It's a great quote. He says that uh, I started at the top and I've been working my way down ever since. <laughs> Just, you know, because he's just continued to deceive and deceive, uh, was a magician. I think in his young days until the day that he died, he continued to do music, uh, to do magic, um, talking about war of the worlds and that whole myth. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's a hard movie to pin down. And I I find it even very difficult describing it just because there's so much going on here. But, um, yeah, man, I could just read about this shit and watch this shit and think about it until the day that I die. I just find it so fascinating. It is, I, it, it is the film equivalent of a Jackson Pollock painting. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's yeah. Is, is that a pretentious statement? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, that's F for fake. Anything else you want to say about it? Oh, in sort of the context of his career. 
Uh, I mean, it's maybe his last great innov- innovation. I don't know, like, if you were to ask Michael Moore or, or, or any of those guys if they were directly inspired by this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They, prob- they probably – it's a question of if, if they've ever seen this movie. Uh, but he cert- I, I would say Orson Welles certainly made films like this possible. Yeah. You know, so there's that. Yeah, definitely. Look, I think most directors – Sorry, all directors are influenced by Orson Welles, whether or not they know it. I yeah, mean, there are directors, I'm sure, that have not seen a single Orson Welles movie that are influenced by him in one way or another. Um, and yeah, this is just one of those examples. Uh, all right, cool. There we go. F for fake. Great movie. Great movie. Surprise movie, too. It's one that's like, oh, yeah, there's also that one. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 1958's Touch of Evil is next. Starring Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, Janet Lee, Janet Lee, right? Yeah. Okay. And Orson Welles. A stark, perverse story of murder, kidnapping, and police corruption in a Mexican border town. It's often bad. considered Orson Welles' second best movie, his second masterpiece. Some people think it's his best. Are you one of those people? It's, I think it's my favorite. Okay. Could be. Okay. There's there's an argument to be had. It's my favorite. It's very close. Um, I don't think it's his greatest film, but yeah, uh, it's an awesome thriller. Yeah, I love I, and I love sort of the against type character in a way that uh, Orson Welles is playing. You know, let I mean, me uh, let me read you a little excerpt from Old Raj, Old Roger Ebert. Oh, about Welles's character in this movie. Much of Wells' work was autobiographical, and the characters he chose to play, Kane, Macbeth, Othello, were giants destroyed by hubris. Now consider Quinlan, who he plays in this movie, who nurses old hurts and tries to orchestrate this scenario like a director assigning dialogue and roles. There's a sense in which Quinlan wants final cut in the plot of this movie and doesn't get it. He's running down after years of indulgence and self-abuse, and his ego leads him into trouble. Okay. That's an interesting reading. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a very Roger thing to say. Very Roger. <laughs> but this idea that sort of like the crooked cop that plants evidence is much like the director that tries to f- assert his will into a script that's perhaps not his. Sure. Cough, cough, mank. <laughs> oh, boy. I assume that's what mank's about. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I guess we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a fun reading, I guess. Whether or not it's like totally true, I who knows? Mm. Who knows? But it's definitely a reading. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what, what do you have to say about this? I think it's great, even though Ethan Cohen doesn't think so. But you know, you know, I saw that clip. That's in the Guillermo yeah, interview, right? He says he found he he watched this movie again, found it very irritating, and a lot of it was because of its how how wide it was. Yeah, he, he didn't like the way it was shot, and <laughs> Guillermo was a little upset. Right, which is kind of funny because Guillermo obviously this is one of Guillermo's favorite movies. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he <laughs> Ethan just wasn't quitting. He was like criticizing everyone's performances in the movie too. Okay, well Charlton Heston is playing a Mexican man. <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite lines from Ed Wood is <laughs> when Johnny Depp goes into the bar and finds uh, Orson Welles there, and he's talking about how he, the studio is not letting him do what he wants to do, and and Orson just responds with like, oh, I'm, "I'm shooting this thriller." but the studio wants me to cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fucking weird. Yeah. It's really weird. Hasn't aged well. No, no. I, I, if any, if you're, I would not be upset if you said, Adam, fuck that movie. Why? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's, that's why. No, I get it. Like it's full on brown face. That's what's happening here. (laughs) With a very unconvincing accent. 
Yeah, it's not good. Is there even an accent? Yeah, there's an attempt at an accent that kind of comes in and out as all of the... Why is it that all of these performances back in the day, whenever they're trying to do... It's an American doing an an English accent, uh, a man doing an Irish accent, whatever. Yeah. Um, Why is it that they always, like, slip in and out? It's, It's so lazy. Um... I think there's a chance that most people that saw movies had never even heard these accents in their <laughs> life. I think that might be what it was. I suppose. You know, it's like it's possible that most Americans, when they saw Touch of Evil in 58, had never met a real Mexican. So they're just treating the audience like idiots. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> that might just be part of it. Yeah, I don't think there was much consideration given to that. It was just, you know, white guys played every role and just, there's no black actors. There's like three black actors two Hispanic actors, no Asian actors, and that's yeah. the end of it. Right. And now we're transitioning to D.W. Griffith. Let's talk about that yeah, one. Sure. Yeah, sure. So I, I think that there's just not much consideration given to it. I just don't think that was considered a prerequisite to playing these roles. You know, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, so here's here's what I found interesting about this movie. Um, it, when it first came out, obviously the, the control had been stripped from Wells, as was the case with a lot of his movies. We'll talk about a few others later on. Um, he had lost c- control. Creative differences between him and Universal arose, uh, arose, and he was ultimately fired from the project during the edit. They had ordered some reshoots. The uh, first cut of the movie was very much not his baby, and uh, a 58-page memo was written by him after the movie came out. He saw the movie. He's like, this is what you did wrong. 58 pages long, painstaking detail what needed to be changed. Oh, my God. Um, But the studio never did anything with it until he died. And then in 1998, some crazy people like you and I came across the memo, Uh, came across the footage, and pieced the thing together shot by shot as best as they could based on Orson Welles' notes. Oh, I see. So that's the new version of the movie, and I'm sure that's the one you saw and the one that I saw. Um, at the time, this movie was not considered to be a hit. It was not good. It was actually panned by critics. Really? I don't know what the original cut looked like. I don't know how much of that had to do with Orson being fired from the project. But it was a very popular criticism at the time that this is all style and no substance. That this is a story that makes no sense. There's a ton of plot holes. I can't keep it straight who these characters are, what they're doing, what crime was committed. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of considered B-movie garbage. Wow. By a lot of people. It wow. did win uh, uh, the uh, the grand prize at the World's Fair because I think Truffaut was actually a judge at, oh. at the World's Fair. Okay. And it had its defenders at the time. Um, but the Oscars did not give it any credit. And it was ultimately the movie that kicked Orson Welles out of the Hollywood system. This is the final movie he made in the Hollywood system. Oh, my God. The rest he had to do overseas, had to get financing in Europe and France. Oh, that's terrible. Um, Kind of strange now. You look back on it, and you see that opening shot, and you're like, how? How? <laughs> but I do think, you know, we've come so far along with blockbusters and with the independent movement and with the sort of the resurgence and the fall of the independent movement and the fall and the decline of the auteur that I think we're able to watch movies in 19. We're able to watch movies in 2020 and think, you know, sure. It's a confusing plot. Sure. There are some holes like this movie utilizes very basic cinematic pleasures, but style is enough. It's kind of like, you know, his 
Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's yeah. kind of, this movie is kind of like Steven Soderbergh saying, I'm done with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I'm done with Out of Sight. I'm just going to make a movie about a heist and it's going to be fucking fun and it's going to have movie stars in it. Mm-hmm. Steve McQueen making Widows is another example. Yep. We love it when auteur filmmakers, Oscar bait filmmakers decide to play around in the genre sandbox yes and just make a movie that utilizes very simple visceral pleasures and that's sort of what this movie is to me now i watch this movie and i think all right i can't really follow the plot and the plot is neither here nor there i don't think it's as good a mystery as some of his other noir movies uh but the style is so fucking good and uh he's able to get the most out of a ticking bomb in a car yes or a crooked cop or an evil gangster. Like these are just very simple basic film tropes <laughs> that he's able to juice the most out of because of his his whimsy and his style. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I, I I and we come back to this a lot. I don't whenever I hear people say style over substance, I almost always roll my eyes because I just I, I get that there are to me, it's only exceptions out there that are style over substance. I just don't buy the argument because mm-hmm. to me, the style is the storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> and in this case, it's certainly the truth. I mean, I don't consider these techniques he's using to be easy to pull off. I mean, you have to be a, a really good craftsman to attempt, let al- attempt them, let alone uh, uh, do them in a way that's compelling. And he certainly does that. And you see where people like John Carpenter get a lot of their moves or get uh, st- start where they find their books to start, you know, making movies based off of those techniques and whatnot. There's a lot of that here, particularly with even just the scene where Orson Welles is in the shack and does he, I, I should have re- really rewatched this movie, but he's like lit only in, in with the chiaroscuro light with on his face and it's he's like strangles the woman or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like stuff well, like Well, in the uh, in the motel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just just really really good stuff and like stretching out a moment which I I, I talk, you know, very fondly of frequently on this podcast. That final sequence and is just incredible. Yeah, I know. Where Heston is chasing them with the recorder. Mm-hmm. And the the amount of angles and the amount of cuts in that scene, they're just immaculate. And it's just fun, man. It's just a frenetic dark and like just disgusting movie like it really is just a nasty movie and i i guess i understand why some people would have considered this b movie fair because it's not like i mean at the time like this this was some really bleak stuff yeah and just the the aesthetic was not exactly pleasant it was sort of like a fincher film of its time in sure. that way it's just like Ugh. you know like what is a border town yeah what an underbelly that's what this movie's about yeah and, but i mean again it's just painting that picture with that style and i think it does it like kind of flawlessly i really think this is a, a incredible movie yeah you know but i i do i do agree like in the sense that like i it's not one that i go for for like 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 the the richness of the story and like i'm not like sitting back and like soaking in i don't know all of the the emotion of the characters or the, or the pathos or whatever in the same way that i would be i don't fucking know citizen kane citizen kane sure right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> just any it's 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 just not that kind of movie it, it, yeah. I, I relate to it closer to panic room than i do something like citizen kane sure it's just it's just kind of a joy 100 and you and i have always talked very fondly about movies like that where it's like great mm-hmm. directors just slumming it you know? Sure, just yeah. slumming it and just making a fucking movie. That's okay though. Yeah, I, and I I don't know why. It's our favorite thing. Those are our favorite movies. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> they're definitely your favorite. Movies. Yeah, I, like like that's why your favorite film is uh by Denis Sicario. And yes. I'm, and I'm like, 
I love it. Like Just I, and go I love, to the border. <laughs> yes, and I, I I love Sicario too. But like, but, but let's shoot some drug mules, baby. Let's go. Come I, on. I get it. Not, I, listen, I get it. The formula is not complicated. We figured no, it out. No, 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 no. Yeah. We know how to make a movie. It's done. Yes. Orson Welles did all the work, <laughs> so we don't have to. We know what works. Drug mules, fucking crooked cops assassins they're always gonna work just make that movie and do it with style and it always works yes yes and this is the best version of that stuff yeah there's nothing wrong with that i don't know why there's there's such a negative connotation with a director doing that because even like widows even though it was like critically acclaimed i did see people that are like well it's not as like great as something like hunger you want to know something getting to the soul of widows that. fucking rules yes, dude <laughs> that movie's amazing you know how much I've watched that movie on cable since it came out? You are, you love that movie. That's an unbelievable movie. Like, again, if you don't walk out of the theater going like, woo, after that movie, like, we have nothing in common. It was very high on your list. I do. I it's did. so It good. was really high on your list. That movie kicks so much ass, yes, it's dude. Very, it's very good. I agree. <laughs> It's not, it's not it's not my favorite Steve McQueen film, but yeah, it's it's really good. Live a little, it's man. Really that movie's amazing. <laughs> yes, it's very good. Kaluuya shooting the guy in the gym. Duvall mm-hmm. just going off. I know. Liam Neeson. Oh yeah, Liam Neeson. That's right. Dead Liam Neeson. Not all of a sudden, not dead. <laughs> it's good stuff. Let direct let, let directors have fun. That's, yeah. that's what we're saying. Let them have fun. Yeah. No, but that's what this movie is. It just uses very very simple tricks. Like that bomb. How many times have you seen a ticking bomb in a oh movie? Like like you put that in a movie now when you roll your eyes, it's like oh so tropey, so cliche. Well, the reason why stuff like that, where it was especially why it works here, is that they don't give a clear indication of when the thing's going to go off. Yeah. And oh my god, I love that. And I think that's actually an issue with a lot of movies now is that they will. So, it, it it's not always a problem, but sometimes when you see the the, the literal ticking clock like five four three two one, sure. as opposed to just I've turned the dial, I placed it in the in the trunk, go, right. and the anxiety of it not knowing when it's going to go off, and you hang on these characters that are standing right next to the car that's probably going to blow up soon. It's just it's ugh, it just gives you knots in your stomach. No, hundred percent. Yeah, I when you it. don't have a clock, it's so much more suspenseful. It's it's the Hitchcock thing. Hitchcock and, always talks about the difference between horror and suspense. Yeah. You know, horror is the thing blowing up and suspense is when you just put it under the table and you wait for it to go off. If I'm to say anything negative about this film, I will say that that opening almost eclipses the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, like as much as I love this movie, it, it it's it's the best thing in the movie. It really is. Yeah. And so. it's probably the most famous single take of all time. Right? Probably. Yeah. It's that maybe Copacabana from Goodfellas now. Yeah. But yeah, uh, sure. 100%. Yeah, this movie fucking rules. Yep. It's awesome. <laughs> yes, it does. I don't care what the critics in 1958 said. Um, okay, critics get it wrong. Yeah, they definitely do. Like Orson's incredible in it. Yeah. Love that performance. And uh, it, yeah, it really is such a shame. Charlton Heston actually wrote in his journal that, uh, quote, I'm afraid it's simply not a good picture. Aww. It has the brilliance that, uh, that made each day's rushes look so exciting, of course. Indeed, there's hardly a dull shot in the film but it doesn't hold together as a story. Okay. And this is why you never, ever listen to directors on their feelings towards their own movies. Mm-hmm. Cause then you would hate Annie Hall. It's true. <laughs> no, I certainly don't, <laughs> but yes, critics, critics get it wrong all the time, but sometimes they get it right. You know, like with Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull, they got that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. 
all right, that's Touch of Evil. Yes. Classic. <laughs> Absolute classic. If you haven't seen this movie, go seek this one out. Watch yeah. Touch of Evil, man. I mean, if you're a film snob, you've seen this movie already. Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But if you haven't, please, worth your time. Let's get to a movie that, as a film snob, I had not seen. Yeah. This one's called The Lady from Shanghai, 1947, starring Rita Hayworth, Everett Sloan, and Orson Welles. Fascinated by gorgeous Mrs. Bannister, Seaman. <laughs> yeah. Michael O'Hara joins a bizarre yachting cruise and ends up mirrored in a complex murder plot. We're such children. I'm really laughing at semen over there. Yeah, Get it's over, never not going to be funny. Get over yourself, Nico. You may know this movie as uh, uh, or, or for its climactic Hall of Mirrors sequence. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, done brilliantly in John Wick Chapter 2. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I don't disagree with that. (laughs) Several other movies of its kind. Um, It's probably the most famous scene in the movie and also the best scene in the movie. Um, This is a movie that I saw freshman year in college. I was in it, man. I was in the thick of it. Did you rewatch this? I I did not. Okay. I I really should have uh, because I I, I read the plot again on Wikipedia just to refresh my memory, but I had forgotten a lot of it. Okay. But again, I was in the fucking thick of it. I went to an independent art house theater in in uh shoot where was it in boston i think it might have been in cambridge but i'm not 100 percent sure took the tea went out there with my roommate uh got all dolled up because the, my roommate was like you gotta you're gonna have to get dressed for this one can't just show up in friggin' sweatpants oh, and a t-shirt because you know because it's lady from shanghai yeah lady from shanghai original print you're watching it oh it was an original oh print? it was original print. oh my god yeah, yeah that's awesome no that's what i'm saying <laughs> you know what I mean? that's what i'm saying that's awesome so we get there and we're waiting in line and it's just a bunch of old people and us essentially and i go in the theater and i like i before the movie starts like i take my phone out just to like check twitter or something and a lady in the theater was like excuse me can you turn your phone off please before the movie even started yep but anyway, I was in the thick of it, man. Real film snob. Peak <laughs> film snob. Yep. Just studying this shit, going to film class and like, you know, reading a lot of Pauline Kale and whatnot. Oh, and uh, yeah, I, I loved it when I saw it. But I, I'm going to have to lean on you here because, again, I hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it in seven years. So what do you think of it? First time watching it. I, I think it's very good. I think it's very good. Uh, I, th- I think um, that it, it's a consistently entertaining enough film um with some awesome performances and i think orson wells i sort of discovered almost feels like a brando before brando for me i, I this, huh. I'll, I'll get to that but like it's just awesome watching him act um uh rita hayworth vision. oh my oh my god vision oh my god yeah. i was I, I i wrote about it in the review that it's crazy that orson wells divorced her who know. divorced who though that's and I I I don't know. <laughs> the question is who was the real crazy one because she married a lot, and uh, I don't know if she ever fully settled down. Maybe. It was Are you saying there's a chance that Orson Welles was not the craziest person in his relationship? Possibly. That's insane to think about. Possibly. There's no way. I don't know, man. How do you live with Orson Welles? I get- <laughs> like. How do you do it? The man was clearly such a prick. Was he? I don't know. He seems like a charming individual in interviews. <laughs> oh, watch some of those outtakes. We, we've been actually doing those on Two Cents Radio. Oh, boy, really? Rob is a low-key Orson Welles freak. Really? Okay. Yeah, uh, is like a big War of the Worlds historian. Like, knows really? everything about oh, wow. that particular scandal and, 
yeah, he, he has played for me like outtakes of him doing radio ads and shit. No oh boy. <laughs> it's not not a good scene. Orson Welles is getting mad. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Maybe he has a right to get mad. Maybe these people are just that stupid. Well, that's the thing. So we, we were the, the one clip was, I guess, I forget. It was like for an ice cream brand or something. Oh, no. Because they were talking about the summertime in this ad and the, it uh, the 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 ad began with the phrase in July. And the director was telling Orson Welles how to read the phrase in July, oh. how to enunciate the phrase in. And I think uh, the director wanted, I'm going to butcher this, but the director wanted him to say it like in July. And Orson was just like, no, just say it in July. Like no one emphasizes the July in, in July. No one says in July like that. And he goes on like a 20 minute rampage about the phrasing of two words in July. And he was right. Yes. And he was right. And he was obviously right because he's the greatest speaker that's ever walked to face the planet. So, of course, obviously. Yes. Of course, he's right. But you didn't have to fight that hard, Orson. I don't know. I don't know. It's it, uh, is it any different than WNBC? No, it isn't. Would, you don't side with pig vomit, of course not. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think in that case, pig vomit was the one with power, and Howard Stern was just like the little kid jockey, just making dick jokes on FM radio. A little bit di- like Orson Welles at that point in time was Orson fucking Welles. Okay, you know what I mean. Well, I still think that he was right. <laughs> no, obviously he was right, but he was always right. He's it's never good, wrong. Sure. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Just listen to Orson. Yeah. Why would you not listen to a man named Orson? Come on. <laughs> that being said, the Scottish accent in this movie, I remember not being great. Not or a Scottish Irish. Irish accent. Sorry. It's fine. It's not the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, I, I think of all the movies I've seen, it is actually, I think the weakest Okay. I think it is actually the weakest. There is just something about I, I think the style here that doesn't pop the same way that his other film his his other films do. Mm-hmm. Something about the editing that's not quite as 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 clean. Like there's a lot of sped up shots that don't really work here. There's a few cuts that are a little confusing and disorienting. And uh it it feels the most Hollywood of the bunch. And it's a it's a fine noir, but I've seen far more noirs that are like significantly better than this and far more interesting and more technically uh capable and not to say that this is in uh uh inept or anything. It's just like, well, you know, it could have could have been better here, could have been better there. Um Yeah, and I, I I'm not like like totally wowed by like like some of the dramatic turns like when he has to eat the pills in the in the in the courtroom which i thought was like a little like uh i don't know it, i didn't that's it didn't, like overtly comedic that scene right uh, sort of i mean maybe when they're carrying him out but that's the thing it was like i it was like a strange like i don't know how to feel in this moment t- type of thing it's not like some of the other scenes that like when they're on the islands with some of the the people helping him on the boat that are a little more overtly comedic um and I think the performance by the guy, the crazy guy, George, what's his name, who wants to supposedly perform the the, the, the murder right. sting or whatever it is. Everett Sloan is the name of the actor. A little, little much, uh-huh. I thought. But again, this relates back to my feelings towards Orson's performance. Watching Orson in this movie next to these actors just shows me like he was more in touch with like the way a human being speaks and the way a human being behaves in a way that classical actors just weren't. Mm. 
And when you see him act next to them, it's so obvious that he just has a much more clear understanding of that than 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 any of them because his performance feels so much more natural and believable. Mm. And it doesn't he he doesn't feel like he's acting at all in the same way that uh, the other ones are. I, and I, I compare it to that. Uh, scene where we first meet uh, Marlon Brando's character in a streetcar named Desire. Sure. And it's just like, oh my God, these are actors from completely different decades. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch that difference. He was a great actor. Yeah. That was the thing about him. It's, it's, it's crazy that that much talent was trapped in one guy. Yep. But yeah, 100% right. Like he is in many ways, while inventing a visual language, also inventing the language of film acting. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously Brando was the one that perfected method, but. Yeah, I think I think you're that's a pretty uh, astute observation actually. Like, yeah, a lot of times the actors around him are a little too stiff and he has such a sense for not only how to play a part realistically and authentically but also how to get the most out of movie stardom. Mm-hmm. Like he was both an incredible movie star but also an excellent method actor. Isn't it that weird though like someone who is just so well-rounded in that way? I was going to say this about about him at the beginning like I don't look at Orson Welles as just a director or an editor. No. Or he's he is he's a director, he's an editor, he's an actor, a writer, he's all those things. It's I don't think that's ever happened. Yeah. Where I I, I view everybody in w- w- it, with such a well-rounded filmic language. It's it's I think he's it. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> I think he's it. It's that's why I said earlier like in terms of 20th century storytellers, man, there's not many people like him. No, no, I agree with that. You yeah. know? Yeah. And all, yeah, you're right. If he was just an actor, if he was j- like just did the theater, if he was just a theater director, mm-hmm. you know, he would have an incredible legacy. But yeah, the fact that he did all of them and he also influenced so many other people, it's uh, it's amazing. And look, if you want to call him the best director of all time, too, that's fine. I don't know that I wouldn't necessarily pick him, but like that's a fine argument. Sure, I'll hear that argument. One of the most important directors. Sure, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, so. I remember the plot of this movie being kind of silly. It is. But I also remember it being very compelling and like kind of like a pulpy sort of way. I mean, the closest thing I, I, I kept thinking of double indemnity, uh-huh. you know, in terms right. of its pulpiness. But double indemnity has, a has I think, much more focus and intensity and, and, and care with the craft in a way that this one didn't quite. Oh, that thing is, is a sharp thriller. Though. Oh, my God. I yeah. love that movie. Yeah. But but this was it was just kind of loose. And, and it was I was. I was kind of trying to find my footing with it. And again, there's a lot of tonal mashups here, some of which don't work at the beginning where it's like, eh, what is this, a rom-com? And, right. And then it transitions into being this really dark thriller. And I'm like, whoa, right. uh, okay. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily come to that in, in, in an organic fashion. It's a little out of nowhere for me personally. I mean, maybe not to you, but I was a, I was a little thrown off by it. So I, it, it felt like the movie, like – trying to find its voice and getting there don't get me wrong it certainly gets there especially by the third act but like yeah i think for the first half i was like what what is this movie what the hell is it you know? yeah and it will not surprise you this was another movie that the studio took away from him this okay is another movie that he fought a lot with the studio uh about the rough cut uh the producer his name was harry cohen disliked wells's rough cut particularly when he considered to be a uh what he considered to be a confusing plot and lack of close-ups wells had deliberately avoided those as a stylistic device he sort of shot it as more of like a cinema verite like a documentary style a lot of wides just a lot of like on the street sort of you know authenticity uh like french new wave shit 
Um, and he also didn't like that Wells had used so much irony in black comedy, especially in the farcical courtroom scene. Oh, yeah. He also objected to the appearance of the film. Wells had aimed again for documentary style authenticity. Um, so, yeah, he uh, he wanted a more tightly controlled look. He wanted to shoot it on a soundstage, did not want to shoot as much stuff on location as Wells ultimately did. And like again, who knows what this movie would have looked like in its fully realized form if the studio didn't meddle in it. Maybe it's even weirder. Maybe it's even yeah. less accessible. Maybe you would have liked it less. I don't know. You know, I can't honestly say. But you hard can, to say where he starts and the studio ends. You know, you can definitely tell that there is a somewhat somewhat of a clashing of visions because it does feel like it changes cinematic styles from scene to scene. Sometimes, hmm. again, it, it it does figure itself out. I think the third act is remarkable, and I I think. Uh, Basically, by the point where uh, I guess there's that shot with um, a Rita Hayworth singing in the hammock, which I absolutely love. Um, from that point on, we, we, basically, we basically get to the moments where I think the guy is going to say, I want you to kill me. And I'm like, OK, this is very weird, but I'm in it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what the movie really had me going. And because because beforehand, I was just like, I don't know what any of this is. It's a little strange. It's well done. But like, come on, movie. Mm. Uh and then it gets really compelling and it's exciting and it becomes this really like tense and interesting and, and twisty noir. And sure. I, I was, I was really digging it. I love a twisty noir. Oh yeah. How could you not? How could you not? Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I remember these twists being very satisfying. Yeah. yeah. Oh, especially in, in, in the, the second half of the movie. Oh my God. Right. They're so essentially great. the premise is that Orson Welles is a seaman <laughs> and <laughs> he's working on this dude's yacht mm-hmm. and one of his, one of the dude's buddies comes up with his harebrained scheme for Orson Welles to confess to murdering him. And then I guess he's just going to run away, not actually be murdered. And the guy's going to end up collecting his own life insurance policy and giving a part of it to Orson Welles. Because the law is if you can't find the body, I guess you you can't prove that the crime actually happened. I guess so. Which is a weird loophole in the law. <laughs> Which I'd like, like some lawyers to take one pass at the script and see what they would come up with. Let's give this a shot, Nico. I want you to kill me. Okay. <laughs> well, that will not be a problem. Don't worry about that. Um. So yeah, and then dude ends up actually turning yeah. up dead, and then he's framed for it. And it's a whole thing. I will say that's a little predictable. Like you know, the guy's actually going to die sure. when that happens. Uh, it, it, and it wasn't much of a surprise as to like who the real bad guys were. But again, the movie's just got a really good handle on storytelling, as Orson Welles does in literally all of his movies. So yeah. even though like I'm not like like blown away by the twist, like, like you said, the way they're executed is quite satisfying. Yeah. Um, good movie. Yeah, very good movie. Yeah. I like it a lot. Me too. And I, I would have loved to have seen an original print of this thing. That would have been amazing. Yeah, I think it's the Brattle Theater in Boston. That's where I saw it. Every once in a while, I'll be watching a documentary and that theater will pop up. And I'll be like, oh, I saw <laughs> Lady from Shanghai there. Cool. I was watching that. What's the movie about Troll 2? Best Worst Movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, that theater popped up Okay. in that doc. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I went there. Interesting. They make their own soda. They make their own soda. Great soda. Ooh. I yes. Like, I like a good place that makes authentic soda. Homemade soda. Mm. They carbonate that shit. They blend the formula, whatever. That and sounds great. Yes. It was that some of the best soda I've ever had. And wow. popcorn out the ass. Great. Out the ass. I'd love to go. Hope it's still open. I hope like this it, fucking country is not shutting them down. <laughs> was it mom and poppy enough to uh, remain open? Oh boy, he's looking it up, people. Let's see. <laughs> On the Discord, what do you think? What are the odds that <laughs> it's still open? 
Brattle Theater in Harvard Square. Yeah, it wasn't Cambridge. Yeah, it was right by Harvard. Uh, Is it open? Got it. Looks like they're still going. Wow. Okay, good, good. What are they screening? Uh, wow. What are they screening? It's just, it's a single screen theater. It's one of those. Oh, it's these fucking Harvard kids. It's sad times. They're only screening exposition for a murder. <laughs> Looks like they have virtual screenings of things. Oh, no, they're not actually running right now. Oh, God. Okay. But they're showing virtual screenings of... Uh, How do we, virtuals? What does that even mean? Like, they, they, they screen... They, they do, like, a torrent video that someone would, would film <laughs> in the theater, and then they just stream it live on the internet? <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Yeah, they're just pressing play on the Criterion channel. Oh, That's my, all they're doing. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Oh, they're showing Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai. Okay. Um. Yeah, branded to kill. Oh, a lot of a lot of Jarmouche, apparently. Interesting. Yeah, they must be on a Jarmouche kick right now. Yeah, there you go. Brattle Theater. You Harvard kids. You damn Harvard kids. <laughs> Keep that place in business. You damn Harvard kids. <laughs> Re- reach into your pockets and you know, dip into your inheritance. Are, are you really relying on the Harvard alumni to keep that thing open? Take a little check from your fucking trust fund. You trust the Harvard students? Keep the Brattle Theater open. CCSU has more integrity than Harvard. Man, <laughs> Harvard. I did not spend that much time around Harvard, but... <laughs> did you talk to anybody from Harvard? Uh, yeah, I've talked to a few people from Harvard. All right. I, I don't remember liking any of them. <laughs> I also never liked anyone I met from Yale. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've liked anyone I've met from Yale either. No, not a single one. Yeah. I, I I had a friend that went there and um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Oh, I know. Not the greatest school to party at. I'll just say that. No, no, of course not. I mean, Harvard might, fucking suck. Harvard might be kind of cool to party. At. I don't know. But Yale, I can't imagine is interesting or fun at all. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, oh, maybe interesting. I wouldn't call it fun. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd much rather go to like our cheap college bar in New Britain. Give me scandal. Give yeah. me scandal at a party. That's what I want. Yeah. I, I, I want to see like when I was at parties, like house parties on campus, I once uh, came up, came open to open the door and then there's this big uh, muscle bound dude trying to bust open a door. Right. Mm. Just for fun. He was like smiling and laughing his ass <laughs> off. And I'm just, he, you know, he's like twice my size. I'm like, what are you doing, man? And he's like, oh, just wait, kid. And then he kicks in the door. It shatters. And there's this guy having a threesome with two girls on the bed. Oh, nice. And everyone crowds around the door. And these, <laughs> these poor girls don't know what to do. And they're trying to cover I've never up. heard this story. <laughs> <laughs> it was senior year of college. Oh, my goodness. And I'm just like... Oh, look at that. <laughs> These naked girls and this guy who doesn't have his pants off yet. Like, oh, oh this, my goodness. This is, this is great stuff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Yale, they're, they're exchanging photos of their yachts. <laughs> they're just like, hey. <laughs> Throwing money off the yachts. They're fun coupons. Look at- <laughs> fun coupons. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen a picture of my pony? <laughs> hey, babe. Take a look. Take a look at this stallion. Oh God! Uh, all right, magnificent Ambersons. Oh yeah, nineteen forty-two. Uh, speaking of insufferable rich people. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> magnificent Ambersons. Nineteen. What a segue. Starring Joseph Cotton, Dolores Costello, Anne Baker, Tim Holt, and Agnes Moorhead. 
nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress, Agnes Moorhead, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction at the Academy Awards. Did not win any of them. The spoiled young heir to the decaying Amberson fortune comes between his widowed mother and the man she has always loved. Mm. First time either of us have watched this movie. Really? Okay, good. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Discuss. What a strange experience for me. Oh, wow. Why? I, I, I don't think I've ever... It's, or at least I can't think of many instances where this has happened. I think the closest example, oddly, and you're going to be very confused by this, but is Apocalypse Now. Okay. Closest comparison. And the, the reason... I, I mean, you could, I have a... I don't know where you're going to land on this movie, but I was watching this movie and just like trying so hard to understand what was compelling about the story mm. to understand what was compelling about any of these characters about any of their drama anything that this movie like was from a narrative perspective on paper i'm like how how did anybody watch this or or or, or how did how was this presented to a studio and like i want to make this thing something that has the weakest conflict you've ever seen in any movie ever right I really like the movie though, okay. <laughs> and I don't understand why I like this movie. <laughs> and huh. it, it was—I—I I, I can't explain it. I think I, I, what I—I I guess what I figured out was like I just really like Orson Welles's handling of the story. I guess mm. I don't think it's a good story all that much. Honestly, I didn't like I said didn't care much for these people, but. Orson Welles telling this story is very satisfying and I can sit back and watch it from, from a technical perspective and enjoy those technical elements. It feels very careful and considered and poetic and the cinematography is amazing and his direction is so on point. I love the editing so much. Mm. Uh, and, and just like the way he chooses to block his actors in a scene, like where they're on the staircase is just so clever and the, how that it, it expresses the relationships between the characters. It was reminding me of Michael in Godfather part two, when he's standing in between his sister and the, and, and the husband, I just like, Oh, the, it, it's so smart. I loved it. Um, but yeah, the story sucks. <laughs> the story's terrible. Uh, and the characters can fuck off, but I love the movie. <laughs> uh, is it fair to say this is the most restrained Orson Welles directorial effort? Cause it's incredibly subtle in its direction. And like, there are yeah. moves that he, that he pulls off here that are similar to citizen Kane, but you, very rarely noticed them. Yeah, I was going to say. And I think this might be the first time that I watched an Orson Welles movie and I wasn't explicitly aware of the fact that Orson Welles was directing this. Well, there, there, his, his cinematography feels very Orson Welles, especially in like that, that trolley shot. Sure. Or not the trolley. Well, the, you know, the carriage. The carriages, yeah. Like it's right out of the, like something that he will eventually develop in Touch of Evil and something that was very present in Citizen Kane. Yeah. But uh, other than that, though, I mean, it's not nearly as explosively ambitious as some of his other ones. Mm. But I, I would say maybe his most clever directorial effort in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. in those in exactly what you were just saying, like the directorial moves are so careful and quiet and you might not notice how smart they are in first viewing, but like w w once you do pick up on them, you, you start to understand, I guess why the movie was as satisfying as it was. Yeah. Not a lot of cuts, 
there are a few pans. I mean, the the dinner party, there's a lot of panning around. And like, that's one of the scenes where I'm looking at it. I'm like, I didn't even realize that we've went from the kitchen yep. to the living room and we didn't break. Yep. And that's like sometimes the most satisfying single take. You know, it, it was about like 40 minutes into the movie or maybe even less. But I kept realizing I'm like, there are like no shots in this movie. Yeah. There's so few shots. It's like, right. like there's probably like, like, like half as many shots that are in any movie, even of this time. You know, it was amazing to me what he was getting away with, with just like the blocking of a single scene, mm. you know, and I just thought it was really, really incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. A um, lot of mids. Yeah. Not a lot of close ups, not a lot of wides. A lot of times in a movie like this, uh, Citizen Kane's like it like that. A lot of close ups, a lot of wides, a lot of like scope, a lot of shots that are just like exploring the mm-hmm. landscape, exploring yep. the actual physical space. This movie gets a lot out of a very little. I agree. Um, and yeah, even how the performances are cued, how they're blocked on screen, how he chooses to foreground certain characters and put other characters in the background. Yeah, it, it's very subtle and expertly done. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, when you're watching a movie in ni- from 1942 about the aristocracy of the <laughs> late 19th century, early 20th century, sometimes you want a little pizzazz, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I, look, maybe I'm a plebeian for saying <laughs> that, <laughs> but sometimes you want a little bit more. Like sometimes it's not enough to just be like, here is a cinematic direction at its best. Uh, you know, maybe a ticking bomb or a crooked cop would go a long way in a movie like this. Yeah. Here's the thing. This is based on a novel from like 1910. And as I just said, it's about, a family that bickers with each other and their fortune is dying and there is courting going on and there's a love triangle of sorts. And, uh, it's fucking boring. Let's be honest. It's a fucking boring story. (laughs) Yes. That's what I was saying. It's a movie about a boy coming to terms with the fact that his mother fucks. Yes. That's the movie. Yes. It's like, you know, the boy's learning. Oh yeah. My mom has sex. She enjoys having sex. How do I deal with it? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what are we doing here? You know, like how, like at this point in time, by 2020, that has become such a tired idea, such a tired theme. Like, yeah, son, your parents have sex with people. Get over it. Live with it. She's moving on. You're in your 20s. Your dad's dead. You're in your 20s. Move on. Take your stepfather out golfing. Get him a fucking tie. Button it up. I saw this video a couple <laughs> weeks ago. It was like like these kids asking their parents about the first time they ever had sex. Yeah. And this one kid is asking his mom, uh, okay, so how many people have you been with? And uh, uh, she says like, yeah, like 12 or something <laughs> like that. And he's just like, but you told me when, like when you were, <laughs> you told me it was only this before you were with dad. Right. And, <laughs> and she was, she's like, I've been divorced for 10 years. <laughs> it was the funniest, his reaction of just sheer horror. It was the, it was the best. Listen, I am not the byproduct of divorce. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know how it feels. I guess when like a new man's coming into your house and is like, hello, son, I'm going to be running things from here on out. That being said, like, ugh, 
No, I am bored by it. It is tired and it's whiny. Okay. And I'm not fucking whiny movie. Yes. I'm not even disagreeing with you. I think that's completely true. Yeah. (laughs) There's just something about it. I don't know why it works so well for me. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, not my kind of movie, not your kind of movie. No, I think, you know, movies where characters like wear extravagant clothes and court each other. And like, Oh, Mr. Darcy, I, I, I could never, you know, like yeah. just all, all that the shit. Stupid. Oh, the hand. Oh God, it's the worst. <laughs> Some people like that shit. All right. And more power to you. If you like that shit, that's just not my thing, man. Give me touch of evil every day of the week. No, I don't like it either. I don't like, I keep saying the story is not good. <laughs> it's not a good story. And these characters are just horrible. I, I, it's just something about Orson Welles's voice mm. and about his artistry as a filmmaker that regardless of the fact that I can't get behind the story, like he just tells it very well. And it's another case in point. Like, yeah, like it, it's another game for me. It's like, yeah, sure. not a good story at all for me, but like, damn it. Did, did you tell it well? And yeah. damn it. Was I kind of enjoying it while I was in it? Despite the fact that I was well aware that in any other circumstance, I would fucking despise this movie. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm going to sound like a broken record again. This was a movie that Orson Welles fought with the studio over. He of was uh, at the time under contract with RKO pictures, same studio that financed Citizen Kane. They gave him complete control of Citizen Kane. This one, when they got the initial cut, it was two and a half hours long, <laughs> two and a half hours long, actually screened for test audiences did not go over well. And the studio said, all right, you're out. Orson Welles then goes to South Africa for some reason. Not sure what he was doing there, but he's just chilling in, or was it South America? Hmm. I don't know. Here I go again, not reciting the facts correctly. He left. Okay. He's in another place in the world and he is writing telegrams back to the studio being like, this is what I think should be cut. This is what I think you should keep. Uh, again, this is just through Telegram. He's phantom directing this movie. <laughs> um, final Cut was a full hour shorter. Yeah. Hour and a half is the final cut. An hour of the movie was cut out. It makes me wonder what was in the movie. And this is where I like in some sense, I'm happy that there wasn't more of the movie. But at the same time, it's like maybe it would have given me more meat. Yeah. Sometimes feels like this movie hasn't been given a chance to breathe. It's sure. kind of the worst of both worlds. Like yeah. you almost want it to either be an indulgent period piece with mm-hmm. just like a lot of character stuff. Yeah. Or you want it to be a, a, a brisk, like, you know, light romantic comedy. I have seen the indulgent period piece with like Age of Innocence and I really don't like it. Oh, so don't get me started. I do not like that movie. Um, But point is hour shorter gets released does well at the Oscars and it's still considered a classic, but many people are like, how about that Orson Welles cut? Because legend is the initial cut of this movie better than citizen Kane. That's what Orson Welles has said. That's what many film historians had said. If they, they apparently also reshot the ending with a more optimistic ending, similar dialogue. You know, that scene in the hospital. Yep. It's similar dialogue between those same two characters but it's while Auntie Fanny is, I guess, dying. She's like, uh. she's gone sick after that mental breakdown in front of the boiler. She's like on her deathbed. And it's this very sort of remorseful, regretful monologue 
that Eugene okay. gives. Because I did remember those scenes in particular feeling cut way too short. Sure. To the point of like undercutting the emotional value of that scene. And I was just like, oh my God, there must have been more there. It's like Aunt Fanny has yeah. a mental breakdown and then the very next scene, she's fine and everybody's okay. And it was supposed to be this very bleak, uh, cynical ending. Yeah. Um. So everybody's like, oh, let's see the original Orson cut. Well, that hour of footage has been destroyed. What? Doesn't exist anymore. Oh, no. And it's one of those great cinematic what ifs. Like, wow. what was this movie supposed to look like? We will never know truly what his vision for it was. I, I would have loved to have seen it. And I think they've hired some studio has hired a search party to find this footage and to repiece it as Orson wanted it. But I mean, destroy it. What, what, did they burn it? I don't know. I've, the film just sort of gets destroyed sometimes. I mean, I don't know. There are <sighs> fires. There are, you know, floods. Christ. Film disintegrates. It's not meant to last forever. And if you're George Lucas. Yeah. You do (laughs) sadistic, foul things with your movies. Um, So, yeah, it is, again, one of those, like, it's hard to tell where Orson stops and where the studio starts. Um, But, yeah, I... It's not my kind of movie. And I, I don't say that. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah, it's not my kind of movie. I think like there's some interesting stuff to say about family and fortune and the you know, the automobile industry and the sort of out with the old and with the new. Like all that stuff is cool and yeah, I just don't like any of these people and I fucking find that kid to be so fucking oh, irritating. Gosh, the fucking worst. Hate me. that guy. The fucking worst. Hate that guy. <laughs> Hate that punk. Just wanted him to get hit with the car so bad and he did and then of course the yeah. ending is it has its cake and eats it too it's like you want to see him get his comeuppance and they keep saying he's going to get his comeuppance but he kind of sort of does yeah what the studio doesn't realize is that the audience feels the same way yes. as the characters do. yes <laughs> we don't like this kid break this kid's legs <laughs> feed him to sharks <sighs> yeah no 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 good yes yeah. I, st- I still enjoyed it i don't know how or why i just i just did it's i think it's just orson yeah, the, the the bit the, the Orson that is there. Yeah, it, it got to me. I have to admit. And by the way, those credits. Yeah, how about those closing credits? Did you see the closing credits? I don't know if I did. Of Orson narrating. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah. I yeah. saw those. Oh, those. How awesome were those? Great, 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 great. Yeah, really good. And it was written and directed by me. My name is Orson Welles. My name is Orson Welles. And then the microphone pans out. So good. Great stuff. Best closing credits I think I've ever seen in a movie. Awesome stuff. Yeah, I agree. Great stuff. What a way to close a movie out. That's part of it, too. Just knowing how to start it, knowing how to end it. Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling, man. I liked it. Movies. (laughs) Movies. All right. Finally, here we go. The moviest of movies. The worst movie on the list. The most movie movie ever made, I would say. It's really a piece of shit. I don't know why. I don't know why we nominated this one. So movies. Mm. 1941 Citizen Kane starring Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton, Dorothy Comingore and Agnes Moorhead again. Mm -hmm. Winner of Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. I'm sure we'll be talking about that next week. Also nominated for Best Picture, Actor, Director, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, Film Editing, and Score. Wow. Those are nine total nominations. Fun fact about the Oscars that year. This movie was such a bomb, such a commercial and critical uh, bomb that at the 1941 Oscars, every time the movie was announced for one of its nine nominations, the audience booed. The audience booed this movie. Wow. Why? Don't know. It notoriously lost to John Ford's How Green Was My Valley. Yep. 
That was the winner that year. I think also Double Indemnity was nominated. I think so, too. Yeah. And both lost to How Green Was My Valley, which I have not seen, but whatever. <laughs> uh, following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scrambled to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. AFI, the American Film Institute, Sight and Sound, Roger Ebert, every fucking director that's ever lived. Consider it the worst movie ever made. Yeah, put it at the absolute bottom of their list. Yes, and for good reason, because it is a piece of dog shit, this movie. Uh, yeah, so best movie ever made is, is what everybody says, yeah. and uh, I guess that's the story, and we're sticking to it. What do you think? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Fine. Yeah, okay. This, I mean, there's no perfect answer to that question, so yeah, whatever. This is the problem, with when, when, which is why I don't believe in, in lists when they get to this caliber. Sure. The fact that there is a list that, cons- that is going out of its way to call the best movie ever made, I think it's a very ignorant thing. Yeah. No, but if we're going to do it, I mean, that's, that's cool. I mean, look, there are about there, 20 good answers for that. Yes, right? exactly. That's what I'm saying. But so if any 20 of them were chosen, like if you want to say Casablanca, if you want to say Vertigo, if you want to say Godfather, it's whatever. There's a, I, I would say there's about 100 good answers. Why not? There's plenty. Maybe not that many, but yeah. I know. I, 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 good ones. I, I thoroughly believe that. This That's part of the reason why I, I come back to this. I'm like, like, really, like, best movie ever. I agree. It's like one of the best movies. It's one of the best movies ever made. It is certainly amongst the 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 top that cinema has to offer you know but like to make that judgment i just i don't know it's hard to quibble with though again because i i i agree with you i just find the conversation at that level kind of pointless exactly it's just at that level it's like we've all decided this is the mount rushmore of movies and we all universally love them and if you find someone that doesn't like citizen kane they're such a vocal minority. Oh, yeah. You know, so... It's a boring conversation. It yeah, really is. It, it is. So it's like, okay, it's number one, it's number five, it's number ten. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. I, Vertigo jumps with it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Godfather, of course, is always in that conversation. Yeah, okay. Sure. Best movie of all time. Okay, yeah. I agree. Fine. Mm. Fine. Uh, put it this way. There is no movie better than Citizen Kane. How about that? <laughs> you know, maybe there are only movies that are just as good, but no movie is better. Oh, 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 you know okay, what I'm yeah, saying? I, I, like there may be a tie up at the top, but if we're grading this on like a one through one hundred well, scale, plenty, there are plenty, plenty of movies that I like more than Citizen Kane. That okay. doesn't necessarily, yeah, me too. Doesn't necessarily mean I think that those movies are better than Citizen Kane. Yeah. But yes, I, I I understand what you're saying. Sure, okay, I agree with that. Uh, of course, based on the story of William Randolph Hearst, famed publisher, there's a little bit of. Uh, John Pulitzer in there as well. Some other figures, tycoons of the time. We're going to talk a lot about the making of this movie next week because, again, Mank is about the making of this movie. So maybe we should hold off on all the behind the scenes stuff because there's a lot of interesting behind the scenes stuff. There are novels that you could write about with how much behind the scenes stuff there is to talk about here. Sure. And Mank is only going to give you one perspective. I know. It's it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, So you can read the Pauline Kael story. You can read some of the other literature about it the disputes of the Pauline Kael story and we'll see. So that, that'll be next week for now. I want to just sort of keep this conversation in what are our personal thoughts on the movie? What does it mean to us when we watch it? How does it move us? How does it inspire us? And also the influence that the movie ultimately had, because I think, let me ask you this. Is it safe to say most influential American movie of all time? American movie? Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. American movie. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Again, I, I really honestly believe, like, if you're in a, a, a 
quantify influence. It's like up there with Seven Samurai and this, and I'm I juggle these ones back and forth sure. constantly. Sure. Yeah, Birth of a Nation too, though, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah. people forget about this, is that you can't really discredit the works of the silent filmmakers out there. I mean, they re- I mean, they had a tremendous influence on Citizen Kane. Sure. So Yeah, Fritz Lang too, right? Oh, yeah, Fritz, Fritz Lang, uh, Robert Fine, who I'm probably going to talk about in a second. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, of course, have been disputes about this. Like, this is the movie that essentially creates a certain brand of cinematography, a certain brand of editing. The idea of the wide lens of the long depth of field is something that was really not used to its potential until this movie. It was used. Yes. It was used. It was just not uh, recognized the same way that it was here. It's the same thing with the deep focus cinematography, chiaroscuro lighting, uh, some of the exaggerated images, um, which is, you know, not, not so much the Dutch angles, but like those I- extremely exaggerated shots that we see in like uh, Robert Vine with uh, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Sure. There's a lot of German expressionism in this movie. Um, again, all of these things present in a lot of movies, sure. actually. It's just... Somehow Orson Welles was able to take all of that, like corral it and and reconstruct it into his vision here. And it paid off gorgeously. I'll quote uh, a, a critic board. Well, talks about how the film did not invent any of its famous techniques, such as deep focus cinematography, shots of ceilings. Yep. Uh, how do you say that? Caracoso lighting? Chiaroscuro. <laughs> you got a little further in film school than I did. Uh, in temporal jump, jump cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that many of these stylist, uh, stylistics had been used in German expressionist films in the 1920s, such as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yep. But Bordwell asserts that the film did put them all together for the first time mm-hmm. and perfected the medium in one single film. Even if Wells did not invent the cinematic devices employed in Citizen Kane, one could should nevertheless credit him with the invention of their meaning. And that's, that's an the, interesting point. And you know, that's, that's the important point here is that they've been used before and they've been out there. The tools have been out there, but he's the one that really, you know, gave them usefulness and put them together in what many consider to be the perfect artifact. I would, I would back. And I don't think it's that those, those techniques didn't have meaning in the other films necessarily. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think the meanings there, this is the first one to give meaning to like the, the cultural consciousness. Like people saw them and they're like, Oh, that's why this is being used. That's why this is being used. And it made filmmakers more aware of why this stuff is being used, which is why it is so like extensively studied in film school. Like if you go to film school and you don't study Citizen Kane, you're not in a film school. Sure. You're right. not in a film school. It's as simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I get exactly what he's saying. I, I, not to say that I, I think those other movies didn't have meaning in them, but it was not as recognized the same way as it is here. Like the recognition of these ideas is sort of what gives it the, the, you know, the broader meaning, I suppose. I hate to use this analogy again. It's doom. Oh god. It is doom. Ken it is fucking doom. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. <laughs> it is the doom. Doom is Citizen Kane. <laughs> Citizen Kane is not doom. Let's be clear. <laughs> Take it easy. You know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but in the same you know, I'm not I'm gonna I'm not gonna go over that again. You know what I'm talking about. Sure. But yes. <laughs> doom did the same thing with first person shooters. Patient zero. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah. Uh Here's the thing about Orson Welles, too. This is his debut feature, which is crazy. Fucking nuts. Unbelievable. 24 when we made this movie. Adam, how old are you? I'm going to be 
26 in February. How old am I? Let me check the old birth certificate there. Oh, yeah, I'm 25. Got to be 26 in about seven months. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. I've done more than Orson. (sighs) I'm trying to find where I did more than Orson, but it's happening. It's got to be there. (laughs) It's happening. Don't compare yourself to this. Orson Welles did War of the Worlds like four years ago. He was able to do that. He is a perfect storm. What's going on here? I don't know. Maybe, maybe if you or I had the perfect storm of circumstances, we could have made a Citizen Kane. I don't fucking know. No, we couldn't have. (laughs) We definitely couldn't have. I guarantee you of that. Our our two minds together, we couldn't have done it. Greatest debut feature of all time. Absol- obviously, now, this is absolutely true, and it's not even close. Not even a conversation. The maturity in this movie, I know, and right? the perfectionism in this movie, and all of the balls that he's juggling in the air. I guess Herman Mankiewicz has to get a lot of credit for it, mm-hmm. but like. Man, this is stuff that a 24-year-old just doesn't think about. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, a generational thing. Like, how does a 24-year-old do this? And I mean, maybe it's just a difference between eras, 24-year-olds back then. You know what? That's case in point right there. I guess. The fact that older generations maybe had a little more integrity than uh, younger generations now. Yes. Like, you, you 24-year-olds, let me ask you a question. Did you make You're any- You're one year older than these supposed 24-year-olds, by the I way. know. You are speaking to your peers. I know. Okay, peers, Nico, you, me. Adam, Nick, yeah. Zach, everybody. Yeah. Uh, did you make anything remotely close to Citizen Kane, or did you accomplish such a feat? Did you have as deep an understanding of humanity as Orson Welles did? Made a hell of a TikTok last week. Holy shit. Hell of a TikTok. My floss game is really on fleek. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> this is really incredible. Yeah. It really is. No, it's embarrassing is what it is. It's embarrassing and it's shameful and it's depressing to think about. Yeah. What did you do? I, I made another video that I'm 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 eating fucking uh uh I don't know, quiche because <laughs> I'm going healthy. <laughs> At 24 years old. I did three whole podcasts this week. (laughs) I voted. Crazy, man. I voted. (laughs) I got the sticker to prove it. I mailed in. Go to hell, man. Oh, boy. Go to hell. Orson Welles making Citizen Kane. What are you doing? Son of a bitch. You got a fucking Kamala Harris sign on your front lawn. You know something? Timothy Chalamet's getting up there. Yeah. Okay. With, with, with levels of excellence, I have to say. Okay. We'll see how that Bob Dylan performance is. We, we definitely shall. Um, anyway, he makes this thing at 25. <laughs> and, of course, everybody's like, what the fuck? How'd you do this? Like, what's your secret? You must have been dreaming about this for your entire life, just studying cinema and just piecing together, you know, uh, some of the great films ever made from across the pond. And well, no, Orson Welles says that his love of cinema began only when he started working on the film. Yep. He was a theater guy. He was a radio guy before that film was not really his medium, not really his passion. When asked where he got the confidence as a first-time director to direct a film so radically different from contemporary cinema, he responded, quote, ignorance, ignorance, sheer ignorance. You know there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession, I think that you're timid or careful. Yeah. So he just, like, went for it. He's like, all right, I'm just going to, like, put the camera above the building, and we're going to drop it through a broken window and that's how we're going to enter the scene rather than just walking through the door. Or how about this? We're going to cut a hole in the floor and shoot at the 
actor's feet. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to show with the ceiling and we're going to do this incredible and really expressive low angle shot to enforce the amount of power that these characters have. Yeah. And everyone's like, that doesn't make any sense. And right. he's like, well, let's just see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he invents a cinematic language. Yes. He invents the language of cinema throughout this entire thing. Right. Mm-hmm. He puts cameras in like broken glass and he refracts the, the image to, to distort a person and the foregrounding and the backgrounding is mm-hmm. like, Blocking, man. I know, like, we're getting real film nerd today. You can't but help it with this, though. Blocking. Yeah. His parents in the cabin with the mm-hmm. window and then him playing on the sled in the snow. I it's like, it. that's the, just cinema right there. The profile. I don't know. I fr- I'm, I'm probably flipping these characters and I'm sorry, but like, I think the father in the foreground, but he's in like sharp focus and the mother or something in the background. Yeah. One of those characters. But he's all in silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but they're, but the rest of them are in this sharp focus to emphasize their importance, but some of them are not as like, like confident with the situation that they're going to ship their son off and all that. Yeah. It's just such like, again, like beautiful ideas that are expressed great just with a visual style. And you could, you, I, I understand exactly what's going on before they've even started talking. And right. It's just great. No, the opera, when she's singing at the opera and they oh, pan my. up to the dudes in the rafters that are just holding their nose. Mm-hmm how like where does this come from like you don't just like wake up one day and and this inspiration is just in your head like that's what i don't understand about this. he's an artist i don't know yeah it's crazy to me that clapping scene at the end where uh amazing inspired by shia labeouf by the way he's he's still he stole it directly from shia labeouf oh is that right but you know neither here nor there yeah you know it's okay um uh, uh, yeah, I also just, uh, in terms of like a narrative structure, like this is so radically different than anything yeah. anybody had ever seen. And that's, again, this has been, what, what can I, what can you offer to the conversation of Citizen Kane beyond just yelling at Nicholas Winding Refn? <laughs> you know, like, what can you do? <laughs> this, this is it. Thank you, William Freakin, by the way. Uh, yeah, for saying that, yes, you made something. <laughs> fucking, have you seen that clip? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, you, my you God. Sent it to me. It's the best. Yeah, you said the best. Uh, yeah. No, right, exactly. Yeah, the the way that they just play around with structure, but they do a really clever thing too, Mank and and uh, and Orson, where they play that newsreel at the beginning and they tell you the story that you're about to to hear. You know how it ends. You know about the divorces. You know about the deaths. You know about the rise and the fall. You know about the palace. You know about everything within the first five to ten minutes of the movie. And the rest of it is just playing around with perspective. Yep. And it's playing around with point of view and unreliable narrators. And each little vignette, there's like three or four of them throughout the movie, takes on a new person's point of view all surrounding around this one character. And it's not a question about what happens. It's a question about why. And it's a question about how. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, now seems like a pretty basic concept of screenwriting. Yeah, sure. Then... No. Mind-blowing. No, yeah. Splitting the atom. You know what I mean? Like, you're 100% right. It's not just the filmmaking. It's not just the acting. It's not just the cinematography. It's not just the editing. This script is a marvel. It's one oh, of the yeah. great scripts ever written. I agree. You know? I know. And the the whole idea of Rosebud, it's now a trope. It's something that's been parodied and borrowed. And what an incredible device for a story that should be pretty boring on the surface, shouldn't it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... Maybe at the time too, like this struck a chord with people when like a media mogul like that was like everyone's like like resource for entertainment or, or news or, or just I don't know I don't know just just, just back then <laughs> well not, not as <laughs> fresher back then let's be let's be clear like they, that that was more of people's hero I, I I suppose and to have them broken down in this way 
is just very interesting. Yeah, just and then those were our heroes. Stop it. Just then. Stop it. We, uh, yeah, I know. I know. Bro, I'm not saying just then. There's a scene in this movie. <laughs> I don't want to. There's a scene in this movie where he loses the primary. He loses like the, yeah. the governor race, and the newspaper is like, "What are we gonna write the next day?" And the, the headline is literally. Kane loses election. Fraud found at polling sites. <laughs> what the hell? This movie was made 80 years ago. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. insane. Oh, yeah, that's right. These are still like very pressing ideas. Oh, yeah. Like there's so much Rupert Murdoch in this character. There's so much Ted Turner. There's so much Roger Ailes. There's a lot of Trump. Yeah. I know like we, we stretch now ever since 2016, we've been stretching. Every figure is now a Trump figure in, in pop culture. And that's not always the case. I see a lot of Trump in this guy. Sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's a very noble figure and maybe in a lot of ways that maybe Trump is not. Yeah, that's fair. And I certainly feel for uh, 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 Foster Kane in, in the way that I certainly don't with uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. But um, yeah, man, like, like, like absolutely. And, and I think I, I, again, just, talking about legacy with this film it's another one of those movies that i think everyone finds things out of i mean if it, if the movie aged poorly i don't think it would have been studied nearly as much as it as it still is it's still really entertaining and that's the other thing yeah it's just right. a really really entertaining film that i love to watch and i think that's the thing that i was struck with last night rewatching it mm-hmm. for the first time um is like when i was just able to let my guard down <laughs> and i had already re- i'd already read all of those criticisms and i already watched all of the clips in film school and I was able to just watch it as a movie and it was so freeing because first of all, Orson Welles is really good in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like his, it's an excellent performance. He's 24 years old and he's playing 80 or playing. I think what 70 is when he well, dies. I, I mean, he goes from like, like a 24 year old to like a 70 or 80 year old. Right. So yeah. yeah. There's just a lot of depth in that performance and yeah, being able to just give myself up to it. That ending really works. <laughs> the thing with the sled really works. You know, know, it's, easy to take for granted but it's such a a brilliant storytelling device and it's such an awesome ending and such an awesome bow and says so much about like your legacy what you leave behind what actually matters what actually matters especially is the the one that always always sticks with me you know this idea that when i was so struck by this line that the reporter says at the end of the movie where they go what did you learn about kane and uh of course through the entire two hours he's obsessed with what rosebud is but they ask him what'd you learn and he goes eh, not much really Sad. and i'm sitting there and i'm going i just heard his entire story like you learned everything there is to know but all that matters to you is this one word all that matters to you is this this one thing all that matters is the lead you're going to put at the beginning of your story and it's just so easy to miss the stuff that matters. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to reduce someone's life to one single word. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's just such a powerful theme is once you're gone, you, you might be the, the fucking king of the coop while you're here. But once you're gone, you're just reduced to this one thing. You're reduced to this one fundamental question. And, uh, yeah, it's just really depressing and bleak to think, yeah, didn't really learn that much about them. Yeah, cool, because they don't allow themselves to listen. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a great idea. The fact that they're only looking for what is Rosebud just reduces, like you said, reduces everything down to just this one one idea. When it's like, you like to, to experience the story is to listen to it, and you weren't really doing any of that. You were, you were letting it, like, go over you. Sorry. You were letting it go over you, but you weren't exactly, like, taking in anything for, like, the value that was there or appreciating the man for what he really was. And at the end of the day, I mean... 
like <laughs> I love the idea. Like you, some people have criticized the the twist for being like, who cares? It's just a sled. That's a common thing at the end of it. Yeah, it's a stupid criticism. <laughs> but part part of that part of that for me is is interesting in the sense that um, I, I I think they don't get it first of all. Um, but it, the fact that they are literally reducing the meaning of the movie down to just the sled sure. is so telling, and it's right. a, it's actually more effective that they don't get it. Right, I love that. Right, that's exactly the point. The point is you should have paid attention to yeah. the last two hours. You should have paid attention to his marriages and his decline and. Like him clapping at the opera, as you just said, is such a moving piece of character work. Yeah. Like who who the hell cares about the sled exactly? But then, but then, like, redu- like paying it off with like the bow of the, the the memory of him just being a young boy with a little sled, and then throwing <laughs> it in the incinerator. Yeah. Yeah. beautiful no it's it's, it's a like, beautiful idea yeah, even that scene at the beginning where he reads the journal of the former board member and it's locked away in this vault and he's reading this artifact that no one else is allowed to lay eyes on and he reads the chapter about foster kane and then when the word rosebud doesn't appear he just slams the thing and storms out it's like oh i guess this was a waste of time <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it, yeah it's amazing because you're watching it and it's like no none of this was a waste of time this was incredible cinema and incredible storytelling yes. and uh you're you're 100 right yeah the, the critics are actually proving the point aren't they yes yeah this is a good movie i'm sorry I I, take. i'm sorry i joked about it saying it was a piece of shit at the beginning because yes guys turns that, out i was a bit too harsh i was a little bit too harsh when i when i gave it a second viewing you know i really thought hmm uh you know who doesn't like this movie roger no Ro- roger that's it's roger oh yeah that's right that's right, that's right that's right that's right wait who doesn't like this movie ingmar bergman oh wow okay and called it a total bore <laughs> above all the performances are worthless the amount of respect that a movie has is absolutely unbelievable wow <laughs> wow now now you're never gonna watch an igmar bergman film and enjoy it that's too bad yeah too bad indeed <laughs> uh all right well that's it it's in the movie hall of fame isn't it oh hmm we're, we're, we're not letting I, I, Citizen I Kane. I wasn't really thinking we should induct Citizen <laughs> Kane, you know? I'm not feeling it. I think we should just... Let's put Mamma Mia in as a makeup call for last week. How about that? Why not Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Come on. Will you meet me halfway here? You know, if I give you Elysium right now, we don't induct Citizen Kane. <laughs> Back-to-back weeks. Last week, we had Godfather Part 3 and one of the biggest abominations in the history of film. And now we are putting in the greatest movie of all time. Elysium. Elysium. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you said, what what to add to no. this conversation, really, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, people have lived and died studying the career of Orson Welles. And they still are, and that's why we're getting Meg. By the way, it's not Elysium, it's Citizen Kane. I'm sorry. Yeah. We didn't want to confuse you. Yeah. Uh okay, there we go. That does it. We're not done though. Because next week, more Orson. Mm-hmm. Mank. Orson played by Tom Burke, the brother of Ryan Gosling, and only God forgives. Or the boyfriend from the souvenir. I always think of him as the character from Only God Forgives, because I've not seen the souvenir. Good movie. I'll watch it. Good movie. Maybe I'll see it. Yeah. He's great in that movie. Yeah, he's he's really good actually. Good actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't wait to see him in this. I can't to, can't wait to see a drunken Gary Oldman though. Apparently, Gary is just killing it in this right. movie, and Seafried too. Really? Okay. Believe it or not. Oh boy, 
Seafree, is she going to get her Oscar? Maybe. I think everyone gets an Oscar. I think this one's 11 Oscars. <laughs> At this rate, what else is going to get it? <laughs> I think they're going to give Chadwick the posthumous one. That's think- my guess for, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, they're going to give him the... That's what it seems like. Okay. That's what it is. Because they're not going to give it to Gary because he just won two years ago, yeah. right? Yeah, so. so they gave him his and maybe Delroy Lindo, but no, I think Chadwick's getting it. Yeah, okay. Maybe you're right. Anyway. Whatever. It's going to be a weird Oscar season. I'm kind of excited, though. Let's hope Mank is good, man. I hope it's good. Yeah, me too. I really it's hope. It's a Fincher film. <laughs> Come on. We'll see. We'll all see. Right. Uh, all right. So that's coming next week. Tune in to the pod after you watch it on Netflix. Peep our review. Have a very happy holiday. Stay happy Thanksgiving. Safe. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe. That's what they tell you, right? <laughs> oh, see, I was going to be reckless and put my life in danger, but you told me to stay safe. And thanks gonna, for that helpful reminder. I was going to go whitewater rafting for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's just, but uh, okay. Have a safe flight. You know, I was I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna just like get in the plane with an inexperienced pilot, but. Now I'll go to the real airline and actually go on that plane. I was going to try autoerotic asphyxiation in my closet. Sure. But, you know. I if, guess if I'll stay safe. If you really want me to. Okay. All right. Fine. I was really looking forward to it. But. <laughs> go to the Discord. Uh, link is in the description of this podcast. Talk to us about movies. We love talking to you. And that's it. Love you so very, very much. Until next week. Don't play me out yet. Okay. All right. Quote by the great Don Rickles. Oh, boy. Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, has been a great star for so many years. This man was married to a great many women in his life. They're all flat now. (laughs) Every week, it's less and less of a movie quote. (laughs)